Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1234 to 1247. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 1234. Story number one The Curious Case of Humanity, written by Retinal 97. Humans didn't evolve by themselves. Every species knew it. It was just too much that didn't line up. High gravity tolerance, the ability to ignore poisons, the desire to feck absolutely everything. You know the deal. Everyone knew, except those star-damned apes. That's just being human, said some. That comes from evolving on a death world, claimed others. When you asked how being a human explained anything, all counted that Deathworld had that name for a reason. They just laughed in your face and ended the discussion. That was until the team of scientists found proof. The team actually wanted to prove the existence of time travel. And they did. Even today, no one knows how you can travel through time. Only that you can, and that it happened, will happen, exactly once. The only payload, human DNA. By this point, even the notoriously stubborn death willers had to admit defeat. Humans still joke the score now stands at Xenos 1, humanity over 9,000. This, however, threw up a new question. What species is mad enough to create something even remotely like humanity? We could calculate the date the probe was sent from to within a millennium, but... As time neared, no race had time travel tech, nor the absolute insanity needed to create humanity. So, um, humans did what humans do. They cracked the secret of time travel, seemingly just despite the universe, and sent a single probe on course to ancient Earth. Turns out, humans did evolve by themselves. Kind of. Great, now my head hurts. Damned humans! End of story. Story number two. The Orbital Bar and Grill, written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot. The Orbital Bar and Grill was usually a cheerful place. A Roxy had been enjoying his ships, even learning the rules of the strange weapons game and sacrificing his tips to the gods of poker when the boss peeled himself out of the office with hackles raised and smelling like a blocked toilet. He nodded at an elderly human that stood with a fresh glass of whiskey and glared at the new barman. He hissed, He's not like the other humans you have met. Even they stay away from him. So keep serving until the militia collect him. No bill, no conversation. Bonus if you make it through the night. In fact, I'm putting you on double time and take the weekend off if I still have furniture at the end of the night. He dragged out a large metal bar from beneath the bar and handed it to a Roxy. Use this if you need to. It's got a fair few dents in it. The locals know what it means. Roxy was beyond surprised and quickly looked at the man at the bar. Boss, what are you talking about? He's not doing anything. He paid cash. The strange beak of the boss nodded. I've learned the hard way. He glanced carefully at the human. That one has enemies. Don't know why. Never asked and don't care. But every time he steps into my bar... Someone dies, and make sure it's not you. If it goes to crap, you put the bottle of Terran Iski on the bar and slam down the shutters. 
and Roxy gave a reluctant nod, lost for words. His boss grinned, his two sharp teeth very visible. Son, make it through this and you can work on every bar in the Foundation. Your apprenticeship ends tonight. He shuffled back into the office and slammed down the security doors, the deep clang making a point for him. Roxy was on his own. He was still holding the metal bar when he heard the slap of an empty glass on the counter. He pushed it back in place and looked around to see the unsmiling human. Humans always smiled. He hurried to serve him. Sorry, boss, I just wanted a word. Uh, same again on the house. The human seemed to inhale a little too much atmosphere. Sure, why not? He looked at the now-closed security door. A little worried, is he? Said the fool. Always a problem with people that rely on camouflage. They can't deal with the ones that don't hide. Don't worry, lad. I'm just passing through. He laid a pile of currency on the bar, just in case. Then he fell silent as the iski hit his lips. Aroxy watched as the human seemed to generate a no-contact zone around himself and sip at his drink. Nothing happened. Nothing exploded and his boss seemed more and more paranoid as the evening drew on. Two of his regular humans arrived, grinning and smiling until they saw the old man at the counter and suddenly became serious. One of them approached him. Whatever he drinks, whatever gets broken, we pay. No limit. Monclear. Aroxy was looking at the truly alien. These were not his normal humans. This was something else, and he had no idea what. Um, the bulls were covered by the boss. Uh, what the fuck, dude? I thought you were here to play darts and steal more of my money. Who is this guy? The human shook his head. Ask him. He's one of the Iron Men, and he died for us. The skinny human looked stone cold. His eyes darkened, and his face flashed red. Just give me the bottle of whiskey and three glasses. Guess we forgot what day it was. Keep pouring, and keep it coming. The two humans took their drinks into the shadowed corner and drank in silence. Some mumbled toast between them. Heroxy carried the glass like it was a chalice as he approached the human. Sir, from the humans... He hesitated, but he was getting tired of knowing nothing about whatever was going on. Sir, they tell me that you're an Iron Man. I have no idea what that means. He raised a smile. How about your barman? The boss thinks that you're going to kill people, and your fellow humans are ready to drink themselves to death in your name. I'm kind of lost here. The human straightened up and looked down the clear green eyes, his bulk no longer hidden by the well-practiced slouch. Hard... I am one of the Mayan men, and today is sort of a holy day. Today we remember our homeworld. All it means is that I want a lot of iski and a lot to leave me the feck alone. He bowed his head towards the darkened corner where his fellow human sat as he raised the glass and mumbled at toast. Aroxy had excellent hearing. One reason why he had the job. He heard the human say... Gaia lives, and watched him down the iski in a swallow. The resin freighter had landed without incident, a few informal bribes being paid to ask no questions about the origin of the cargo, but nothing important. The crew were given leave and a fat payroll to enjoy. After some excited chittering, it was decided to hit the bars and bless the day with the blood of aliens. It was illegal and banned under many treaties, and their people had pretended to sign 
but after the ship was unloaded, they would be quickly in free space. A few of the customs agents saw a sea of insectoid crew approaching and simply picked up their biggest guns and slammed down the security shields. Only one thought to warn the orbiter. The resin were still laughing until they saw the shutters fall and grey uniformed guardsmen suddenly erupt onto the streets. The orbital militia might not be the best trained in the galaxy, but they had heavy guns that could end a debate quickly. A word was passed amongst the bars and stripper joints on the orbital. Blood seekers. The orbital bar and grill had gone off the grid. A Roxy didn't know how his boss was hiding in the cupboard, but that left them far from the alerts that had other bars putting down shutters and picking up weapons. The open doors were suddenly a beacon to the resin as they pushed deep into the orbital looking for blood and entertainment. When the bar doors swung open, everybody knew it was bad news. There are ways of opening a door that'll just piss people off, and this was one. Some dick was holding it wide for the dirt and dust of the orbital and letting out the heat. A Roxy was about to tell them to feck off when he recognized them. Childhood monsters. Blood eaters. Pirates. He found his place. Close the fecking door. I have room for ten and no more. He tried to trigger the shutters, but it didn't work. One of the resin closed the distance and grinned. It's weird, hollow teeth on display. I think you just challenged me. I seek a blood debt in payment. He could hear the laughter from his crew. Once they had taken the bar, the night would be interesting. A Roxy tightened his grip on the iron bar and tried to find the next move when the old human spoke. It was low and tired, but his words held something. Chief, I've met your kind before. Where are you in the war? The resin spun around, his kite and clattering. It paused for a moment. A human, <laughs> he grinned. No, I never fought your kind. My queen did. Today you will be my first. Tales tell of your blood, and I wondered what you tasted like. It drew its blade. Would you deny me the blood price I demand? The human seemed to fall in on himself and picked up the whiskey. Aroxy gave up getting any support from the human and grabbed the iron bar. Then he heard a noise from the back of the bar. His two humans had grabbed chairs and were moving to defend the bar. Nice, but hopeless. The Iron Man dragged himself upright. You have learned nothing. We killed your people until they had to flee into the dark. Your queen probably died to my blade, and I must have eaten your king. You taste like crab to me. His green eyes seemed to flicker. You have stories, right? Inherited memories and shite. I am an iron man, and if you cross that threshold, I will kill you all. The resin seemed to stop for a moment as he reached back in time. You, killing you is gonna be a privilege. Aroxy tried to explain what he saw to himself as a blur erupted in the bar. The human tore into the resin, and the one he called Chief fell quickly. Then the rest, the screams, the blood, the one they called Iron Man was stood outside. The screams continued. It seemed to change shape. It was blades, then human, but bigger, crushing. 
One of the humans put down a chair that he'd been holding. Feck! He picked up a bottle and took a swig. Those feckers never learn. He looked at a Roxy, still completely lost. They killed our homeworld. We didn't get back in time. We made the Iron Man. Humans that? Well, ain't quite human. No blood. Nanites to the core. They can't be killed again. And they never, never forget. But all we left for them was a taste of whiskey, food, and peace. Today makes 200 years since he died for us. The human poured out another drink and handed it to Roxy. Cheers! Gaia lives! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1235. Terrans. Walking Microcolonies. Written by Arctis 2020. The conference room was filled with anticipation as the title of the presentation, Terrans. Walking Microcolonies, was flashed on the screen. Species from across the galaxy muttered to each other as the next speaker prepared for his session. Questions buzzed in a thousand different tongues from a thousand different appendages. What could this be about? Will the humans turn out to be some sort of micro-hive mind? Will the humans turn out to be a house of parasitic worm? And their fleshy appendages are mere flesh shoots of an inferior species. Are they a collection of beings sharing a seemingly singular individual bodies? What more could there be? At the front of the stage, a small furry mammalian sapient, an auric, came onto the stage. His long, rabbit-like ears seemingly surveying the chatter of the audience as it lightly twitched a few degrees left and right with each step. Seeing the slab coach dressed figure, the audience slowly fell into attentive silence. Good day, fellow academics. I am Dr. Loplo, he began, and thank you for choosing to attend this presentation. Dr. Loplo took a deep breath before continuing, with the audience seemingly subconsciously mirroring the motion. Humans have long been discussed at length in the galactic stage, even before the species' formal introduction into the galactic community, he continued. In fact, this very conference that we're all attending today is a testament to the galactic community's curiosity regarding this equally curious sapient species. Despite the general theme, perplexing populations and exploration of a unique galactic species, well over half of the discussions concern the conundrum that is humanity. We just have to be thankful that our human colleagues are such good sports that they don't mind being theoretically dissected like a veneer in a high school science lab. At this, a couple chuckles, or what counts as chuckles in other species, emanated from the crowd, half of which probably coming from the humans in the room. Humans, it seems, as an enigma. They are often portrayed as some sort of devil that laughs at the doctrine that we call causality and science, the professor said, earning a few nods and affirmations from the audience. Many have discussed their uncanny scientific and technological marvels that can both destroy worlds or heal them. Many have discussed, both formally and informally, their shocking capacity to withstand conditions and substances that could wipe out 60% of all known sapient species in a heartbeat. Many have discussed their shocking war-filled histories juxtaposed with their many acts of compassion. Many have discussed how their xenopsychology can be as pacifistic as an auric 
or as warlike as a hydric. And many more have discussed the puzzling reality that, despite being born from a death world that is far beyond all known categorizations of death world and deserved its own classification, humanity approached the galactic community with peace. These are all very interesting topics indeed, but we will not be talking about any of these, at least for now. Here, some of the audience began to stir. A hundred different expressions of confusion visible to Dr. Lapolo. Right about now, many of you are probably asking, what does a xenomicrobiologist have to say about the humans? Or more likely, how did this nutcase even get into this portion of the conference? Well, it's quite simple. I'm here to talk about the human digestive tract. Or more specifically, the human gut, Dr. Lopelho revealed. At this, some of the audience began to rise from their seats and move to the nearest exit, disappointed at the mundanity of the topic. Dr. Lopolo seemed unfazed by this, however, and was quick to continue speaking. Now, now, before you all pack up and leave, I'll ask you all to let me give you a bit of context. It is common knowledge that, despite many physiological differences in species digestive tracts, there are broad similarities. 1. Species utilize a compound that breaks up ingested substances into composite parts. 2. Species utilize contractions to aid the digestion and passage of these compounds. And 3. Species modes of digestion are solely dependent on their own native genetic code. That is to say, everything about this process is predictable from the genetic point of view across all sapient species. Dr. Lopelho paused, as if expecting the audience to respond. At this, a couple hundred members of the audience proceeded to do their species equivalent of an eye roll. As each translation software registered these non-verbal cues, Dr. Lopolo continued, That is all except the Terrans. The audience members that rose and began to leave were stopped in their tracks and slowly made their way back to their seats, their disappointment turning once more into curiosity. Other, more observant members of the audience began to check the translation software. And no, that is not a fluke of your translation software, Dr. Lopolo clarified, much to the relief of some of the listeners. I didn't mean to say Terence, and for good reason. Remember that. For a very long time, we have surmised that the resiliency of human digestion is due to the capacity to produce a highly acidic substance within their stomachs alongside their highly regenerative physiology. Dr. Lapolo narrates in the screen flashes a 2D representation of a human stomach in action. For the most part, that is true, he confirms. If we were to expose the vast majority of sapient species to these gastric substances, we would be charged with seven war crimes and ten counts of bioterrorism. The look of terror flashed on the faces of most of the audience members, as a 2D stomach was squeezed onto a 2D auric and was instantly dissolved. Xenobiologists so far have assumed that the lower portions of the human digestive tract was, like most life forms in the galaxy, primarily used to further absorb remaining nutrients through contact with the organism's internal cells before defecation. The auric continues, his nose twitched in what looks like a subconscious look of disgust as he finishes his sentence likely imagining the process a bit too accurately. The audience held their breath. What could possibly be shocking twist this time? What more could this mad species have? Terrans, 
Dr. Lopolo states, with a bit of emphasis, are unique in the disregard that their lower digestive tracts house a wide variety of amoeba, viruses, archaea, bacteria, and other single-celled organisms. This screen flashes with a representation of a human intestinal tract housing colonies of single-cell organisms. The audience began to mutter amongst themselves, Surely, this cannot be possible. Surely these are all cases of some new disease. And no, Dr. Lapolo firmly confirms, anticipating these questions. This is not a case of some large-scale infection, and these do not appear to have any adverse effects on our human colleagues. On the contrary, these have been linked to their physical well-being. A mismanagement or complete destruction of these microbiomes could lead to a grave illness, a condition known to humans as gut microbiota diversis. In other words, Darrens have found a way to symbiotically coexist with what would normally be considered a pandemic-causing pathogens in 90% of the sapient species. Dr. Labolo paused, allowing the audience to digest everything that had just been said so far. And before it comes to mind, he continues, this condition is not limited to humans. In fact, this condition is common across all species in Sol 3, save for a few handful of outliers. What counts as a rarity in the galactic scale is common amongst Terrans, Sol 3. Earth or Terra is literally so much of a death world that the laws of life have been entirely reversed. The audience remained silent, staring at the screen as it projected an image of Sol 3 and videos of a variety of different multicellular animals and plant species. The implications slowly sinking in. Now you understand why I use the term Terran for this presentation. But now, you must be wondering how on earth, pun intended, could this occur at such a large scale? Dr. Lopolo says in a comforting yet confident tone. He pauses and flashes the next slide of the presentation. On the screen flashed a diagram of a cell used in the Sol 3 curricula. Visible were various parts, the nucleus, the organelles, the membrane, and the cytoplasm. What you see on the screen is a representation of the cellular structure common in Sol 3. At first glance, it doesn't look all that different from other cellular diagrams. A core containing genetic material, smaller parts with specific functions and cell maintenance, the internal fluid and the housing that maintains its structural integrity, Dr. Lapolo says, nodding. But there is one unique aspect that has evolved across all species in Sol 3 that is yet to be documented on any other world. The presentation then showed a magnified versions of two oblong-shaped parts with their internal mechanisms shown. These organelles, the mitochondria and the chloroplast, are often joked about in human biology circles as simply being the powerhouse of the cell, citing that these are the limits of what would often be remembered by most students by the time they graduate, Dr. Lapolo narrates. Sad to say, that tends to be the case for most of my own students. Chuckles emerged from the audience, perhaps glad to have some of the tension relieved. While all species have some counterpart that functions in much the same way, these organelles have two unique traits. The observant amongst you might have already noticed the oddities in the diagram, Dr. Lepolo surmised. At this, the audience stared intently at the diagrams. Some began looking with great confusion, others stared back at the presenter, thinking, perhaps, that some mistake was made in the creation of these representations. 
Seeing these expressions, Dr. Lapelo continued, I assure you that these are accurate as they can be. These organelles, the common mitochondria and the plant-based counterpart, the chloroplast, have two unique traits that puzzled many comparative xenobiobiologists since the introduction of the human race into the galactic stage. One, these originals have a dual-layered membrane similar to the outermost cellular membrane. And two, these originals carry their own genetic material independent of the main cell, yet consistently multiply with the cell during mitosis and meiosis. Most had simply shrugged these off as a mistake in the printing, but conformity studies have proven otherwise. Mutters began to rise from the audience as they turned to each other in an attempt to resolve the puzzle that they had been handed. On cue, Dr. Lapelo continued, These occur due to an interesting evolutionary development in a common ancestor of all complex organisms of Soul 3. The presentation flashed to a simulation of a larger single-celled organism engulfing another. It is believed that these originated from an incident wherein a eukaryotic organism attempted to consume the organisms that were mitochondria, and later on, chloroplast, in the early days of Sol 3's evolutionary history. The only thing was that the consumed cell and the predatory cell somehow formed a symbiotic relationship that continues to this day. Simply put, some fecker got swallowed by a predator and decided, you know what, it's kind of comfy here. Hey, want a sandwich? And the predator let them live. Dr. Lapelo paused to take a breath. Silence filled the hall at the revelation. Symbiosis was not uncommon in the galactic scale, but for symbiosis of this sort, between what was once a predator and prey, was uncanny and unwieldy at best. To have it succeed at such a scale as to form a sapient species is even more of a surprise. As we can see here, Terrans are marked by this unique symbiosis from their evolutionary history, and... It is my theory that this continues in the puzzling microbiological interactions of Terran organisms, micro and macro, towards each other, he says, and this is perhaps precisely because of the conditions presented by Soul 3. Imagine a world so deadly, so terrifying, that existing in the stomach of one's predator is far more optimal survival strategy than being exposed to the planet. Imagine a world so harsh, that even the simplest of organisms are forced to adapt from survival of the fittest to survival of the fittest symbiosis. At this, Dr. Lapolo clears his throat, realizing that he'd begun becoming a bit too emotional in his delivery, though the audience didn't seem to mind as they too had become embroiled in their own emotions. When humans enter the galactic stage, the older races brace themselves for a warlike species who would be incapable of diplomacy and compromise, he continued, attempting to talk much more calmly. And, in a way, they did get a species extremely capable, masters even, of warfare. Yet, in spite of this, they were the first to extend a handshake to the diplomatic envoy sent by the council. This had long been primarily attributed to the humans' own brutal wars, which involved the detonation of nuclear armaments on their own citizens. Perhaps, to some extent, that was true. But I argue that there is something more intrinsic, their evolutionary history. Whereas other death wilders would be sharpened by strict evolutionary roles of survival of the fittest, Sol 3 gifted her children with the laws of symbiosis, of adaptability, 
and it is this adaptability that we applaud humanity for and our galactic community. At this, the audience began to stir, some nodding in agreement, others scoffing at the strictly evolutionary perspective, having snapped out of the shock of the presentation's finding. Let me make one thing clear. I don't doubt that many near-extinction events faced by humanity have created a culture that, in equal measure, harbors the warmest empathy and the coldest vengeance. I don't doubt that the many planetary-wide conflicts have created a shared capacity for the greatest feats of diplomacy and the worst terrors of war. I don't doubt that their wide range of histories, individualities, and belief systems have made them a sapient equivalent of a multi-tool. I don't doubt that the harsh conditions of Sol 3, with its many characteristics that would make any religious construct of hell sound like a paradise, has played a pivotal role in the creation of a species so resistant to a wide range of extremes that they make interplanetary mech suits look like they're made of paper. I don't doubt that my colleagues across the various fields have done their due diligence given the state of the literature at the time, Dr. Lavalo clarified. But to say that there is nothing in their genetic history that points towards their complexities is far too simplistic and, as humans would say, at a bullcrap, he continued. We have spent enough time making humans, and by extension, Terrans, the impossible devils that defy our doctrines of science and causality. As we have discussed here today, from a xeno-microbiologist's point of view, it all makes sense in the end. I believe there is a human saying that fits well in this case. The devil is in the details. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1236 Humans are still space dwarves, written by the stabby Brit. For three weeks straight, the Galactic Forum had been assembled. For three weeks, they had tried and failed to resolve a growing crisis. It seemed that another war was about to start between the Groby and the Ubexi. At this time, it threatened to boil well beyond mere border skirmishes. Some feared that this could be the Great War. A war that would not end until one side was utterly destroyed. At least two species knew exactly which of the two sides it would be who faced oblivion. Which is why Malkor, the Groby delegate, found himself in a private meeting chamber with Thorgrim Lawbringer, the representative empowered to speak on behalf of the High King of Sol and its associated territories. The human, who, at a pitiful five foot ten inches tall, was the size of a Groby child, was nevertheless a being who radiated confidence, dressed in a fine blue ceremonial garb, and with the traditional axe of office at his hip, he looked more like a larper than a diplomat. Not that Groby would ever have said as much, especially now. So, Thorgrim said, he packed a great deal into those two little letters. The Groby felt his knees go weak. I, I, uh, I take it that you're aware of our situation. The tall green alien stammered. Thorgrim nodded, slowly and deliberately. With his left hand, the dignitary began to gently stroke his long, grey beard. His eyes fixed on the groby, and when he spoke again, it was slowly, with purpose and care. You want me to find some means to save your kind from war with the Urbexi, a conflict you would most certainly lose. 
That is a considerable ask, Melkor of the Groby. I, uh, no, the Groby answered quickly. I will not lie to you, human. Our two species have rarely seen eye to eye. But you must surely realize that this war is bad for us all. Spare me the speeches. You haven't the time for that. If you wish to be saved by me, you must offer me something in return. You must pay a price worthy of the cost in lives that it will result. I want you on your knees, Groby. I want you to beg. After a brief pause, Malcor folded himself down onto his knees before Thorgrim. He bent low and pressed his bulbous forehead into the carpet between the human's boots. Please, Thorgrim Lawbringer, I beg of you to save my species from the coming war. Thorgrim bent over and patted Malcor on the head as though he were a sad little puppy. I'll do, Grobby. Now leave the rest to me. When Thorgrim and his retainers reached the forum, the entire room was in uproar. The Abaxi delegation had sent a stage, led by Xanator, a bronze-skinned beast of immense physicality, and her head crowned with towering antlers. I am through talking, the beasting bellowed. We have talked and talked for weeks, and nothing has been resolved. It is now time to settle this matter through force of arms. At long last, something delicate Xanatar and I agree on, Thorgrim shouted as he marched to his place in the ring of representatives. His outburst caused a brief stillness from the other delegates as they turned in confusion. Before anyone else could interrupt, Thorgrim continued, Honorable representatives of the Erbaxi delegation, I agree that we should turn this time-wasting banter into a contest of arms, However, it will be a regulated contest. You are not empowered to dictate terms of war, human, Zanator shouted back. Thorgrim's eyebrows furrowed in anger. His right hand closed around his ceremonial axe as he raised the blade up for all to see with a cold, focused tone. This axe I carry is a reminder of my purpose here. A mindful weight upon my hip as to the consequences of failure. If words alone cannot maintain order, I am to bury this axe into the table of peace and sunder the book of law. With that act, a state of war will exist between my species and yours, and it shall continue until one of us has been purged from the galaxy. Fresh mutterings filled the hole. You would throw yourselves in with the Groby. Why? Because you no longer wish to speak. They do. Thorgrim's eyes shone with a terrible purpose as he raised his axe high above his head. The axe falls, Xanatar of Abaxi. Wait! Xanatar snorted. I will indulge you for now. You wish for there to be rules to the war. The entire forum held its collective breath. Watching the terrible still of Thorgrim, at last, with reverential care, he returned his axe to the proper place at his hip. The human took a moment to straighten his beard before clasping his hands behind his back and smiling, calmly, as though nothing had happened. Yes, honorable friend, there will be rules. It will be a codified and contained conflict, one that no, stop, 
We will not allow you to spend the next ten years writing a damn encyclopedia to arbitrate for every potential event of the war with the Groby. Thorgrim took the interruption at his stride. A fair point. You have wasted so much time already. I can understand why you are so impatient. Although it goes against everything I believe in, I am willing to offer you... The human winced as though in pain. A verbal contract. Short, in plain English, nothing written down and settled with a shake of a hand. Will that be acceptable? Xanata studied the human carefully, scrutinizing his elderly features for any sign of trickery or deception. This is not like you, Thorgrim Lawbringer, but it does seem acceptable. What are your terms? Six terms and six terms only. Is that acceptable? That depends on what they are. Name them, the Abaxi answered. Thorgrim nodded. First, the war will be fought between named combatants only. Each side may bid a single army, an entire nation, or an entire species, and no more than what is expressly bid. Second, the war continues until one side's government declares surrender, or until the Galactic Forum judges one side is incapable of offering meaningful resistance. Third, the victor agrees to ensure a fair and decent treatment of the vanquished, providing them proper living conditions, food, resources, and so on. Fourth, the vanquished shall agree never again to take up arms against the victor. Five, the victor shall agree not to wage any form of offensive warfare for twenty years galactic standard following the end of this war. Six, if these terms are violated, the entire Galactic Forum shall agree to enter a state of total war against the transgressing party. The last condition caused a great deal of commotion, and a flicker of doubt briefly passed over Xanatol's bestial figures. Will you accept these terms, honorable friend? To his credit, the Urbaxi took some time to puzzle through what Thorgrim had said. His eyes swiveled back and forth as if reading a contract, puzzling through the words. His mouth chewed each sentence silently, looking for a bitter tang of trickery that he felt certain would be present. What is fair and decent treatment by the standards of this agreement? Thorgrim gave a gentle chuckle. Ah, I'm so proud of you! You're almost thinking like a human! No need for a suspicion here. It means exactly what you think it means. So long as it wouldn't get you charged with acts of cruelty towards living beings, it is acceptable. Xanatol's eyes narrowed. Then uh, what is the catch, human? The catch? Well, now, the catch is if you aren't fighting the Groby. As the defender in this war, I bid humanity. Thorgrim announced, stressing the word humanity with the uncharacteristic drama. Wait, what? You're going to fight on behalf of the Groby. I do believe the defender has been bid friend. Care to bid the attacker? The Abexi head glanced about the room as though looking for support from the other alien delegates. Then, if you bid all of humanity, I shall bid the entire Abexi species. Thorgrim raised an eyebrow briefly, his old stumpy arm raised to offer a handshake to Xanatar. Shake if you agree, and wish to be bound before all present to the spoken contract. 
The entire Urbaxi species shall be bid as the aggressor in a war against you, manatee. Once again, the odd inflection. The Urbaxi hesitated. Why do you keep saying humanity like that? Humanity is the proper pronunciation of the Defender's team, I assure you. Will you shake? A quiet murmur began to spread through the assembly. For now, doubt and fear were clear to see upon Xanatol's features. He shook himself, bared his square teeth, and ground fiercely to psych himself up, before grasping Thorgrim's hand tightly. I accept your offer of all, human. The two shook and broke apart. There was a pause that followed, broken only by a quiet cough from someone at the back. Thorgrim seemed utterly unconcerned that he had just pledged his entire species to war. That bothered everyone. The Abaxi most of all. I... I think uh, in the interests of respecting the galactic community, we, we should consider this a neutral ground. Do you agree, Thorgrim? Hmm? Oh no, that'll be a complete waste of time. After all, we can just pop downstairs to the aquarium and you can end the entire war in a single bullet. Wait, what? Thorgrim wasn't listening. The human and his attendants were both heading for the doors. Come along, Xanatar. Let's go get this war over and done with so that we can clock off and grab a pint. The entire forum followed the trio of humans as they headed out of the diplomatic building, winding down the outside staircase to the recreational complex and, as promised, the aquarium. Xanatar led the pack, shaking with equal parts anger and fear, as he hurried to close behind Thorgrim, the tiny human was almost crushed by the two occasions. At last, Thorgrim came to a railing in front of a large fresh water tank. Inside was a large grey animal that resembled a fish, albeit one made out of clay by a child with no talent for fine detail. Thorgrim tapped the railing's information panel and announced, Zarazar, meet humanity, your opponent! The Abaxi stamped over and looked at the display. This isn't a human, it's a manatee. A manatee named Hugh Manatee. Hugh Manatee. Oh, oh, indeed, Thorgrim replied with a smile. In the end, everyone present agreed that the Abaxi had won the war by default. Not that their representative seemed particularly proud of this victory. He meekly agreed to fund the aquarium exhibit for as long as the manatee wished to stay there, and then slunk away to have a cry in private. The rest of the forum were much more pleased with the outcome, and many took the opportunity to congratulate Thorgrim on securing the galaxy for twenty years of peace. At last, the approach was Malkor the Groby. He crept up to the squat human and afraid he'd be pounced upon, but Thorgrim seemed content to watch the aquarium. Thorgrim, I, I cannot thank you enough. I haven't exactly done your kind of favor, Groby. You have twenty years to prepare, and I hope you, you can prepare well. I'm not sure I'll still be here to drag you out of the fire next time. We'll not squander the time you've given us, I swear it, Balcor answered earnestly. But Thorgrim scoffed at the pledge. Ha! Groby, vows are like toilet paper. One quick kiss to the arse, and they are flushed and forgotten. Thorgrim glanced up at the tall, lanky alien. But I guess the old saying is true. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, Malkor finished, dies next. Thorgrim corrected with a smirk. 
Although I suppose your version does work. Jog on, Grubby. Go home to your sad little corner of the galaxy and take credit for my hard work, like you always do. Just make sure your leaders never forget one thing above all else. Don't ever mess with humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1237. Story number one. Unhuman War Crimes. Written by Rednall 97. Um, yes. Hello, gentle beings of the Galactic High Court. I'm Lox Durax, and I stand before you today as a special investigator concerning alleged war crimes of human forces during their war against the Fitzarb Coalition. First of all, let me clarify one thing about the following testimony. While nearly all the actions therein are technically unproven in legal sense, the human government and all the surviving alleged perpetrators confirm that they happened and agreed that they are to be considered as proven in this court of law. That being out of the way, the human efforts of war started over a disagreement about mining colony rights in the star system both parties claimed ownership for. And while this case was planned to be brought before this very court, it was clear that there would be no clear verdict for quite some years. During this time, neither of both parties dared to actually start mining or colonization. However, they both refused to withdraw their military forces. This close proximity of forces in a contested system led to a series of incidents with ever-escalating severity. One day, the Fatsab captured a number of human civilian contractors and threatened to execute them unless human forces left the system. The human government considered this an act of war and initiated a rescue mission, during which human forces fired the first shots of the war. The first two years of the war were rather uneventful, for a war at least, the Fatsab were slowly but steadily gaining ground, but at an unsustainable high cost. And due to their leaders fearing a moral boost due to this court deciding the original dispute in humanity's favor, the Fatsab High Command wanted to force a quick end to the war and gave the order for the attack. Their forces were sent out to class two planets, New Eden, humanity's nursery world, which never in its existence carried even a single military installation and another purely civilian world, the cradle of humanity itself, Earth. Within a single day, humanity lost 15 billion civilians. That was about 27% of humanity's entire civilian population. This changed humanity. Before that, they were bound, by their own laws as well as their morals, to understand their enemy as people deserving to be treated with respect and dignity. But after being forced to witness such destruction brought upon innocence and the celebrations of all Fatsab, soldiers and civilians alike, humanity morality declared them monsters, and human laws declared them their game. That is, when horrors truly started, the human government declared a state of total war. They rescinded all restrictions on weapon types, be it nukes, poison gas, anti-personnel mines, cluster munitions, or anything else. They declared that all protection specific groups enjoyed to be null and void. Medics, wounded soldiers, and civilians were now considered fair game. They commanded that there was no quarter to be asked for, nor given, and they promised that this war would not end until the last but sub was dead. If you want a detailed listing of all the atrocities committed by human forces, 
You'll find my full 800-page report on the official comm devices. After the war was over, the great mourning began. They grieved about those of them that died, those they'd killed, and those that would never be because of them. Of those that participated in the atrocities, more than half took their own life because they could not bear the weight of what they had done. The humans understand that they will never be the same as they were before, and in a rare occurrence unanimously declared to accept any sentence bestowed upon them by this court. In conclusion, humanity strictly adhered to all laws against war crimes, ours and their own, until the Fitzab committed such a heinous crime that humanity promised itself to never let them hurt anyone like this again, and then made good on that promise. I do not know whether they should be commended or condemned for that act. All I know is that they should be left alone. End of story. Story number two. Why Earth is a Death World and Why It is So Unusual. Written by SlowAD2584. You've heard the story of humans of Earth class. They are called Death Worlders. Their homeworld is deadly, with no doubt. From a molecular oxidizer, O2, fully 20% of the atmosphere, to the monstrous solvent dihydromonoxide, H2O, covering 70% of the planet's surface. That doesn't even begin to describe the deadliness of the planet. Its life has evolved to also be 70% of that nasty H2O. Most of the life actually breathes the corrosive O2 for its metabolism. Indeed, such a metabolism of a human is why they burn so hot, store and consume so much energy, and die so young. That is the cost of such a high-octane biological chemical basis. That's what it takes to overcome the deadliness. Side recess. A poem from Earth, very appropriate for Earth-evolved life. Tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forests of the night, with a mortal hand or eye, could frame thy fearful symmetry. Then there are the bacterial, fungal, and viral swarms constantly infecting every living thing the millisecond of any opportunity. That the molecular life forms must have immensely powerful autoimmune systems to have even a chance of stopping and overcoming an infection. Yes, yes, the life of that death world is a ravenous frenzy of everyone's nightmares, to be sure, class. But today, we will discuss just why Earth is a death world, why the evolved life came to be this way, as we all come to understand in our wisdom how or what is not nearly as revealing as why. Earth itself is a very rare and unusual planet to begin with. While the humans consider it normal, when we compare a human to any other galactic species, it is quite clear their version of normal is a bit misplaced. Humanity was quite shocked that they were never able to find any Earth-like worlds and any of the stars anywhere near their solar system. It took some time for any of them to realize Earth-like was truly a one in a hundred billion. 
Well, there are truly only three other worlds similar to its condition in our entire galaxy. This was the unknown factor for the Drake equation, by the way, class. Earth, from nearly its very beginning, as atypical. In its formative era, it was struck by another terrestrial planet, approximately 20% of the size of Proto-Earth. A titanic collision of the sort during the protoplanetary formation often means a total destruction of both worlds, undoing billion years of accretion in forming the planets. But Earth survived the impact. The collision angle and amount was just barely right for Earth to survive and absorb a good majority of the colliding planet into its makeup. Remnants of this collision settled into orbit and amalgamated to become Earth's rather large moon, being a very unusual 1.2% of the mass of the world it orbited. This collision resulted in the first step of Earth to become a death world. Everything after this collision and resultant combined world is a direct result of this collision. This collision is why. Normally, during protoplanetary formation in a protostar formation disk, rocky terrestrial planets get only a certain amount of heavy core elements into their consistency during the process. The Sol system planet Mars reflects a typical formation of properties, but this normal proportion of core materials, typically nickel and iron, as a smattering of heavy radioisotopes, the world's core does not stay molten for much more than two billion years before freezing solid. This negates any magnetic field that may have enjoyed, and this loss soon means any atmosphere the world may have had is stripped away by stellar radiation. The worlds, even with liquid water on them, have scanned time to evolve life before freezing up and failing, simply due to their naturally accrued internal core materials unable to stay molten and hot for long enough. This was indeed the fate of Mars, that had an atmosphere and liquid surface water within the habitable zone. It simply ran its normal course and died by the time humanity arose. Earth, after getting an extra dose of core materials from the collision, has enough inner core material and heat to stay molten and with a magnetosphere for the entire life of its star. No problem. A true garden world for life to evolve and develop. But on the dark side... This is why Earth has a terrifyingly evolved life that had literally four billion of years to figure things out. This is why it's crushing gravity of 32 feet per second per second. This is why humans have to heal and fight off infection so quickly. This is why plate tectonics are still cycling materials and generating new crust. This is why blue-green algae had enough time to develop photosynthesis, protected within a magnetic bubble, to release deadly O2 as a waste product. This is why all complex life have had to figure out how to live and thrive under these rare and unique conditions. Any being who considers a day of Earth a typical Tuesday fully deserves the title of Death Walter, because it wasn't the humans that made the world deadly. It was a deadly world that made the human. C-Class, the why, reveals some interesting fundamental truths, does it not? 
Earth is a death world because it is truly 1.19 worlds into one, with all that that extra stuff entails. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1238. Story number one. The war was over. Written by Wolf 84 The Hubert's lost, but no one told their scattered colonies. The war was over. The humans lost, but no one told their sea chips hidden in the void. The war was over. The humans lost, but no one told their secret military outposts. The war was over. The humans lost, but no one told their dead ships AIs. We had defeated them, the humans, the death wilders, we beat them. It had taken us hundreds of years of planning, secret, decades, preparation, and more decades, fighting, countless dead seas of blood spilled. We had done it. We, the Azanoi, defeated the humans. Not the road to Tar with their uncountable warriors, or the Maanyam with their networked mind. The Azanoi. We drove them from every world that we knew they held, back to their home system. And there we forced their fifth planet to become first the star. Then a black hole. A gravetic shock shattered their home world, even as it was drawn into the abyss. We celebrated. The death worlders were gone. The only known sentience from a death world cleaned from the galaxy. But do you know what trait makes death worlders a death worlder? It is not their planet's gravity, or their immune system, its biosphere's birth, not their hearing or sense of smell. It's their drive to survive, the will to live. Twenty years after we sucked the soul system into an artificial black hole, one of our border worlds went silent. We investigated, found the entire world turned to glass. We landed. It wasn't weapons fire. It was as if someone flipped a switch and the whole world became a ball of glass. Insects and animals, mid-flight, we were found shattered on the ground where they fell. Livestock, people. It didn't matter. It was all glass. Then a second world went dark. That one star went nova. We didn't know what happened to the third world. Your star was gone. With no gravitational anchor, the system disintegrated. All 34 planets are now rogues, careening through space, waiting for some other star's gravity to capture them. We think. One by one, our planets went silent. We had real-time communications galaxy-wide. Everyone did. The humans had invented that centuries before we met them. You would be talking with someone on a planet, and the signal just cut off. We found a star turned to glass. The star itself. None of our scientists could explain why or how. Others went nova. Some simply died, as if starved of fuel. We found planets shattered from within, planets with the crust stripped off, others with their atmospheres rippled away. Fear took over, and many of our planets revolted, renounced our government. Those planets, we think they are safe. 
You don't know. Our communications cut off 36 hours ago. Ships are entering our system. Human ships. And the ground is shaking beneath my feet. The war was over. The humans lost. But why is our planet now dying? Last transmission of the Azanoi High Council before Phoenix Empire glassed their system. End of story. Story number two. The humans are trash pandas. Written by Prairilus Platypus. They are creative, aren't they? I, Minister Quadratst, said, the melodic voice tumbling through the pan council's chamber. Creative, they're brilliant. War Minister Gorb continued to expectorate on the slime-covered panel in front of him. Quadratst found the Hogus' communication methods distasteful, but a necessary imposition to be tolerated in service of the effort against the human scourge. Pan Council's resources had gone quite thin before the agreement with the Horgus, and the appointment of the slavering beast known as Gorb to the War Ministry had been part of sealing the alliance. The Horgus were brutes, but at least they were not savages. Perhaps should not speak our enemy in such an admiring way, Minister Gorb. It is unwise, Kudratst said making little attempt to shield her disgust. Gorb knocked an enormous glob of saliva and commenced squirting it out in various druiding orifices and onto the communications panel. I would prefer to admire and understand them than disdain and underestimate them, High Minister. They are scavengers. Quadratst made sure to emphasize the words, as was clear, Gorb was having difficulty consuming the obvious reality. They feed upon the waste and wreckage. They produce nothing new. They simply consume and expand. That's what makes them fascinating. Everything we discard, they find some use for. They gorge themselves on refuse and become stronger for it. They combine things that should not be combined. Assemble their monstrosities from mountains of garbage. War Minister released a particularly large glob of split now. And they win. Mounties up, Havar asked, her lithe form coming to stand beside the hulking beast of a man who is perched on his haunches in front of the large screen. The beast grunted in the affirmative. You're just mad that you're riding crap can, Havar said, just stifling a laugh. It was unwise to antagonize Rook before a run. He tended to hold a grudge. Should have been outside. Look. At this as an opportunity. Lots of scrap to salt. Primo, too. She pointed to the list. Even a few hogger ships went down this time. They're tough nuts to crack. Crap can, Brooke grumbled. He hated suiting up in the mechanized bodysuits the scrappers used to tear up the ships into usable parts. Even customized for his mock, it was still a tight squeeze. But there weren't a whole lot of scrappers with Rook's creds, so he's the one that the call sent more often than not. Price you paid for being one of the few Xenotax in the biz. Havar patted him on the shoulder. If it makes you feel any better, I'll do this run in my skibs. Rook's thickly muscled neck craned to look up at her now. Can I help you suit up? He grinned, the missing canine just adding to the rustic charm. They'd been playing at this game for a few go-rounds now. 
It was a bad idea to mix work and play, particularly in their trade. But scrapping was a lonely buzz. They both knew where it was heading, but the chase was half fun. The other half came where they did. Avar tapped a finger to the side of her cheek. Hmm. Her eyes moved from Rooks over to the bounty list and then back. You get that anti-ox from the hockey ship, and maybe you can help me take this crap cat off. Rook shut up and then stretched his massive arms outwards before clapping his hands together. A prize worth fighting for. A sly grin crept onto Haver's face. You've got no idea. She tilted her hips to the side and leaned towards him. Of course, if one of those other teams gets there first. Rook snorted. Not gonna happen. They wouldn't even know where to look. They'll do what they always do. Wait for us to make the first move and try to feck us in the rear. He was on the money there. None of the other calls in the sector had a Xenotech. Their crews were just a bunch of ignorant jerks, ripping crap apart and hoping to get something worth selling to the fleet. At least until they'd heard about Rock. Now, every run they spent half their time finding the goods and the other half slapping off the others. No one had died, yet. But it was getting hairier each run. The other cause didn't like the edge Rook and Haver were building. Castle Enterprises were putting distance between them and the others. Fleet was starting to ask for them specifically rather than just put the bounties and release the dogs. Both Rook and Haver had upped their crap cans way past spec, and the others were stewing in it. Should we get to it then? Haver asked over her shoulder as she sashayed down the hallway leading to the mech bay. We're the little red ones, called out after her. That's an idea, Ava called back just before she disappeared around the corner. Fleet Master John Faraday perused the rolls and then handed the tablet back to scavenger Grace Harlow. Castle is on it, Grace nodded. Rook and Ava, we're guessing they'll target the Horgus listings first. Highest upside and most of the competition isn't well kitted to compete for it. Unless they just try take it again, John replied, fixing Grace with a meaningful stare. Grace did not wilt under the gaze. She had built a career on the back of managing scrappers, so handling an irate fleet master wasn't much of a challenge. The other calls had been informed that they'd risk their charter if they interfere with the rival core operations again, more than enough to go around without killing each other. John snorted. Getting a core to play nice wasn't going to happen any time soon. Even if there was enough to go around, they would always want more. It was what made them good at what they did, and what they did was essential to the war effort. It wasn't like Fleet could spare a hull capacity to sort through the aftermath of each battle. They were needed at the next one, which left folks like John and Grace to manage the mess of sorting through the mess. It was better than dying on the front lines, he supposed, but it was still a dead end. No fleet master was getting his banner managing trash. Just to make sure we get what we're looking for. Loss rate was about 7% in the last field. Doesn't look good for either of us to have that happen again, John replied. Sekop thinks trash pandas went black to try and close the gap with Castle. They've made upgrades to the kits that are outside the projected range for what they've harvested the last few cycles. John frowned at that. Any hard proof? If there was, they'd really be dechanted. 
Keep an eye on that, two eyes. If the pandas make a move on Castle, I want to be the first to hear about it. You saw what happened at Scrapfield 32. Grace nodded. Ugly. Very. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1239. Story number two. 25 to 80 milligrams per liter. Written by Warp Mind. Galactic Capital Prison for Nonviolent Offenders Half a Year Ago. The warden leafed through his files and pinched the bridge of his snout. So, uh, this, uh, Hewitt has just been, uh, standing and holding the window bars of his cell for the past year and a half, day in and day out. The guard nodded. Yes, sir. Occasionally, the patrols have spotted him rocking back and forth at his heels, and that's about it. The warden frowned, but he seems otherwise of sound mind. It doesn't appear to be a ruse to be transferred under the mental care. The guard shrugged. Not that we can tell. When approached, he's generally chatty. Asked about news from the outside, events at the academy, that sort of thing. It's not as though telling him about the regular news is going to affect anything. And we can use the opportunity to scan the cell for any contraband while we're at it. The warden leaned back. No metal objects or anything he might fathomly dig through the concrete with. Nothing that he might use as a leverage amplifier. The guard winced. Uh, the footage of Deathworlder inventiveness were uh, carefully considered when his cell was constructed. Smooth stone or plastic surfaces, including the uh, biological facilities built into the cell. Even the sink has no exposed plumbing. Only loose objects that were deemed acceptable was a small plastic vase, holding some local wildflowers. Your predecessor allowed that request as a mental health allowance. He's usually getting fresh flowers every couple of weeks or so, since they don't last forever. And he's rather endeared himself to most of the guards, helping them look over the poddling schoolwork and the like. The warden looked down at the file again. Hmm, yes. Chemistry teacher, convicted of manufacturing prohibited compounds on school grounds. No indications of violent tendencies at any point. Hmm, well, uh, let me know the moment anything changes. He's still got six years and change left to serve. Astra Academy, Galactic Capital, almost two years earlier. And that is how humans managed to mass-produce synthetic insulin in the late 1970s by Standard Earth Canada through the manipulation of the bacterium Escherichia coli. With this development, treatment for the disorder called diabetes became far more easily acceptable, and production became significantly cheaper. Now, this will be on the test next week, so make sure you've taken notes. There was a knock on the door, and Greg DeVitt interrupted his lecture. All right, class, discuss amongst yourselves what implications of this technique can be while I see to who that is. He strode over to the door and opened, only to be met with two public sentinels presenting a document to him. Human teacher, Greg DeVitt, you are under arrest on charges of the manufacture and consumption of a controlled and prohibited substance on school grounds. You do not have to speak up now, but legal counsel will be provided. Greg stuttered, but... What, what, what substances? One of the sentinels looked down at a small data pad. The compounds would be known to you as caffeine, theobromine, coumarin, allyl isothiocyanate, and capsaicin. Others are still being identified. Will you come peacefully? Greg stared blankly at him. Coffee, chocolate, and my spice and condiment rack 
Are you serious? The sentinel nodded. Deadly serious, teacher. Some of your compounds are narcotics with risks of lethal overdoses to some species. Others are classified as biomechanical weapon components. I'm afraid you'll have to come with us. Greg slouched for a moment. Would you care to wait by the door so that I can dismiss my Laclasse first? The sentinel nodded and stepped inside the classroom as Greg walked to the podium to the end of the class. The distance had never seemed so long as today, and someone would have to snitch on him. Someone had betrayed him. Someone had betrayed Greg DeVitt, and the aftermath would reveal who. Little prison for non-violent offenders now. The warden looked into the now-abandoned cell, the bars once blocking the window now quietly lay on the bed, and sighed. How the peaceful human somehow crumpled the concrete wall without anyone noticing for two years and eventually pulled the bars out of the frame, only to crawl through a narrow gap and just, uh, ran off into the night. The guard stared abashedly at the floor. Yes, sir, um, it seems he used the, the flower vase to, uh, to collect his bodily wastes and, and pour them on the windowsill and, and then refill the vase with fresh water for the flowers, um. We still don't know how he could pull that off. The warden grumbled as he started heading back to his office of a place a few calls bloody death wilders, impossibly strong, incredibly durable, unstoppable killing machines. Nobody told me they piss acid. End of story. Story number one. Humans and Honor, written by Rednal 97. Zone knew. What he was about to do could cost him everything. His social standing, his wealth, and even his life. But he couldn't stand by and do nothing. So he stood up and spoke, his pleading tone betraying his proud stature. M my king, I, I must ask you to reconsider your decision on the declaration of war against the United Terran Nations. The king turned towards him and spoke in a calm voice. Sit down, Sone. You may be one of my most trusted companions. I'd even call you my friend. But this is an official court meeting. Tradition demands certain consequences for speaking out against your king. And I may be king, but I can't change traditions. But Sone stood firm and responded, My king, I'm fully aware of what I'm doing, and I know that if I'm unable to change your mind and that assembled council... I am required to challenge you to a duel to the death, which I have no chance of winning. So I understand that if I fail in my plead, I won't leave this room alive. But I cannot allow you to make the biggest mistake in the history of our people. The king was visibly agitated. How? How could this be a mistake? Sure, they are strong warriors, but they only have ten systems. We have over five hundred... Do you honestly expect us to lose? No, I do not think the humans could best us, though they might inflict far heavier casualties than you expect. But that isn't the reason for my objection. No, to clarify my reasoning, please let me tell you of a conversation I recently overheard. I was in a tavern waiting for my food and drink, and I saw a human and an Arabian sitting next to each other on the counter quietly talking to each other. Until the Anabian, out of the blue, blurted out, Oh, you humans wouldn't know honor if it dragged you out of the goddamn firefight. 
The human was understandably insulted and, in a very agitated tone, asked him to repeat that humans weren't honorable. While I prepared for the imminent bar fight, the Ad-Avian backed away a bit and claimed that the human misunderstood. That he didn't say that. Quite the opposite, in fact. He then went on to tell the story about how he and his platoon was taken prisoner back in the war with the humans, and when the building they were sheltered in was hit with an earthquake. The human guard didn't just cut their bindings and run off, but helped each other and everyone else in the collapsed building to safety. His fellow soldiers, as well as the POWs. That he even refused to leave the building until it was sure that everyone else was safe. In the process, more than once nearly giving his life. At this point, the human, as well as myself, was quite confused. So the human asked what the Ad-Avian's problem with humans was then. To that, the Ad-Avian declared that after the war, he searched for the man that saved his life, only to discover that all that soldier got for his heroic and honorable deed was a piece of metal called a Distinguished Service Cross. He further said that such a low reward for such an honorable action should have been an absolute disgrace for the entire human race. After the human asked how big the reward for the Ad-Avian in the same situation would have been, to which he got the answer that the Ad-Avian peoples, similar to you, my king, would have given him the land rights to between a quarter and a half of a planet. To that, the human responded with a single number. 328. After a second of silence, he explained that the human Advarian War, which was about a single planet, mind you, 328 human soldiers earned the very same award for similar acts of heroism. He also added that in the same war, 37 soldiers earned a Medal of Honor, an even higher award, that requires an even more heroic act to be earned. When I came home that day, I checked the humans' claims and found them all to be true. Let that sink in. The humans display such honorable acts in such high numbers that what elsewhere would earn them half a planet wouldn't even earn you their highest award for heroism. And if they awarded such acts the same as we do, they would have run out of planets before they'd finished repelling an attack on a single one of them. And I'm not sure about you, but I can think of little else less honorable than starting a war against such an honorable race. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1240. Story number one. Uncanny to us, humans. Written by Drunken Turtles. Through the ever-moving river of species, Zhao's eyes frantically searched the crowds for his carid companion. The constant, Chaotic movement of the station made everything a blur as his anxiety peaked. He weaved his way through the tails and tentacles in the last direction he saw her wander off. As he paused to take in the surroundings once more, a familiar scent passed his nose. Fried calamander. No better place to look for a lost and naive carrot than to stand selling her favorite food. Zhao's heart relaxed when he saw the distinctive iridescent crest of the blue-green feathers bob over the moving heads. Hastily, he pushed his way to her, ready to scold her for scaring him half to death. He found her talking with another human at the stand while eating a delectable treat of the stick. Eli, 
Four bright amber eyes faced back at the visibly frustrated and breathless human. Eli, I swear if you ever scare me like that again, you'll stay on the ship from then on. We've never been to the system, and you have no weapons. What were you thinking? And who even is this guy? As Zhao took a closer look at the other human, something about them struck a deep, instinctual fear in his heart. Zhao took a hold of one of Eli's four arms and pulled her closer. His other hand subtly shifted to his belt close to his hard light blade. The strange man shifted focus to meet Zhao's eyes and formed an odd smile. The eyes didn't scan. His motions were slightly mechanical, and the unnatural movement of facial muscles resembled an animated corpse to Zhao. The dark cape only added an unsettling effect. What are you? Zhao's skin crawled as his instincts demanded him to flee. The curiosity kept him there. At first, there was no answer as the man's face contorted into looks resembling confusion. I am human, if your question entails that I am not. The man spoke in a monotone inflection. Bullcrap! Zhao responded bluntly. Zhao, why are you being so mean? It was nice enough to buy me food. Just leave it at that and stop making a scene. The patterns across her milky white scales turned a light shade of purple from embarrassment. Her pointed ears dropped and tail wrapped around her left leg. The man's expression seamlessly returned to a polite grin and took a step forward. If I look like a human, talk like a human, and sound like a human, am I here not a human? It seems that no other species objects to that. Tired of whatever game the sting was playing, Zhao unholstered it and activated his blade. You're missing the soul, buddy. Now tell me the truth before I find out what's under that skin suit. A crowd of onlookers began to amass around the confrontation. The stand cook, probably having seen such a sight countless times, continued to cook. Many around knew the station security wouldn't be there anytime soon and were ready to intervene in the worst case. Ein, the monotone intonation deepened into a withered voice. I am not human, but an earth. The skin bolted and turned to straps of loose, tar-like skin. Piercing yellow eyes cut through the amorphous void of the figure. Sturdy tentacles held their weight up and the dark cloak dripped down. Eli's scales shifted to lapis blue as she hugged Zhao tightly. It vocalized in a more organic tone. I command you, no other species have seen through my mimicry. Fascinating, you humans. Forgive me if a simple experiment got out of control. Zhao put away his blade, causing the crowd to quickly disperse. Yeah, we humans are good at recognizing things that resemble us, but aren't. We call it the Uncanny Valley. Maybe I'll let my fear get the best of me, but something about you just didn't sit right with me. An evolutionary remnant. Perhaps there was once a reason to fear something impersonating a human. The Nerus remarked, intrigued. That thought made Zhao's spine tingle. I'd rather not think about that possibility. With that final exchange, Zhao took Eli by the hand and made his way through the bustle of the ring station back to the ship. After such an experience, he just wanted to be done with the refuel and head to the next contract. That night, he would hold Eli a bit tighter. End of story. Story number two. The Void Took the Stars, written by Mercury the Dina. The stars are sacred. They give us warmth, 
They give us light. They give us life. The Emperor is a star. The Emperor is above all men and women, for he is a representation of the perfection of a star. Long ago, the Emperor declared that it was time for our people to leave our planet and spread across the universe to spread the Emperor's domain and power. We spread through space like a star's light spreads through the void. We terraformed and colonized dozens of planets and built hundreds of stations. We eventually found another species, primitives unworthy of the Emperor's light. Our leader, in his infinite grace, decided that such brutes should work as our laborers, and some tried to resist his divine command and were executed for their treachery. We kept expanding. More primitives were enlightened by hard labor. More worlds and systems were conquered. More heretics were exterminated. Until we found something strange. A star was flickering. We went towards the star in order to know what could possibly be happening to such a holy creation for it to be flickering. What we found horrified us. Primitives, brutes, hairless, disgusting apes that were trapping their own star using millions upon millions of satellites to collect light and power for their own nefarious needs. The Emperor called a great crusade against these heretics. We invaded their system by the billions and burned everything in our wake. They put up a good fight using technology which was completely new to us. Some wanted to study such foul knowledge, but even the most curious of scientists became silent once the Inquisition speaks. The heretics were destroyed, the worlds glassed and made a symbol to all that the star is above all. Years passed and more worlds were colonized. Decades passed and more primitives were enlightened. Everything was back to how it should be. Until one distant star at the end of the galaxy just disappeared. Scientists were sent to the Emperor to tell him the news. They asked for an expedition to be sent towards the missing star. The Emperor refused, based on the expanse, and so scientists begged. They were burnt at the stake for daring to refuse an order from the Emperor, and daring to imply something as silly as entire stars disappearing. The scanner showed another star had disappeared. The Emperor ordered that all scanners aimed towards that region be destroyed, for they were clearly broken. Years passed, and the Emperor's oldest son grew curious about the missing stars and decided to get a new scanner aimed towards the region. He saw nothing. He checked and rechecked the scanner, but it wasn't broken. There just was nothing but void. The son told his father of what he saw, and the Emperor finally decided to investigate. The void was studied, and a pattern behind the disappearance of stars was created. A research team was sent towards the star that would be gone next. They waited and watched. After less than a day, a truly gigantic ship was seen on the system. Bigger than a gas giant. It was an unnatural and asymmetrical shape, like a sea wave constantly breaking against the void. Its color was just as wrong as its shape. 
not blue or red or any other color. It seemed to be made of sheer nothingness, like its reflection was bent light of a black hole. It moved silently through the void and slowly approached the system star. It shifted its sickening form and revealed a single colossal spike protruding hundreds of kilometers out of the mass. The spike grew brighter until it started to flood the void around it with light. It fired. A massive beam of energy mixed the gigantic black pellets was launched towards the star. Massive amounts of plasma shifted and bent under the will of the weapon, and soon the star's insides were visible from the surface. The black pellets ended the fresh wound, and as soon as they did, the cut was resealed. The scientists watched in awe and terror as the star shook and shifted like a balloon filled with too much liquid. It exploded, and from its insides came out billions of smaller ships, but that didn't worry them. What worried them was that amongst the billions of ships, there were two that looked identical to the first one. Breeds were prepared, slaves were put to work even harder, admirals and generals made plans. The emperor declared another great crusade against the enemy, who he simply called the Void. The Void grew closer and closer to our mighty empire. We were confident that we could destroy them, for we had the might of the stars on our side. When the first of the Void ships entered our territory, we gave all our power at defeating it. We would not let it take our beloved stars. It defeated us. Our weapons did nothing to it. It simply absorbed lasers, and any missiles that got close enough just deactivated. Not even momentum could keep them going. Everything that we threw at it just stopped dead in its tracks. They cracked the star. The smaller ships went into jump space and never came back. The big ones kept going and destroying us. All attempts at communication failed, and even pleads of surrender by the treacherous heretics were simply ignored. After years of its unstoppable march, it finally reached our home system. Instead of simply moving towards the star like it always did, the ship moved towards our home planet. All screens on the planet turned to life at once and showed an image. The image of a mostly forgotten species. The first species we ever truly exterminated, the hairless apes. The screens went black and white text appeared. You took our home! We took your stars! It left. The home world tried to talk to the rest of the Empire, but nothing ever got out. Soon, the people of the capital starved as the shipments of slaves and food stopped coming. The Star Emperor died alone in his great palace, surrounded by nothing but a starless sky. The Void does not forget. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1241 Forced Retirement, written by Ack 1308 Inspired by a word prompt, currently the world's most successful supervillain, you have renounced evil and agreed to turn yourself in. Some of the heroes who spend years fighting you are determined to prevent your peaceful retirement. Sirens sounded out in the distance. There were many of them, getting closer by the minute. All on my account, 
course. Such had been the case for years. As the sound of helicopters joined the chorus, I stepped to the window and twitched the curtain open to admire the sea of flashing red and blue lights already present outside the fence. A hammer blow smacked into the outside of the high-tech polycarbonate, and I saw the fine white cracks radiating out from the impact point. I closed the curtain again and moved to one side. Whoever fired that sniper shot had almost certainly done so against orders, but I didn't feel like trusting my life to whoever they managed to dredge up with the hostage negotiator. Not that they needed one. I had no intention of harming the president. My presence in the Oval Office was only necessary so that I could pass on my message personally. They're a little anxious to end me, wouldn't you say? I asked the current incumbent in the Oval Office. He stared defiantly back at me from his seat behind the resolute desk but didn't say anything. While I hadn't gagged him, I'd taken care to fasten him securely to his chair. One has to observe tradition, after all. I moved over towards the door and gave the agents there a cursory once-over. Still breathing, still unconscious. That was probably for the best. I didn't want to appear to be sending mixed messages. Why, yes, I had actually left a trail of unconscious Secret Service agents and other law enforcement personnel on my way in to see the president. This wasn't sending a mixed message. With my reputation, clashing with serious well-armed people was an absolute guarantee whenever I came within half a mile of an important government official's. The continuing presence in the land of the living was testament to my chosen level of restraint. Don't worry, I assured the president, turning back to face him. I'm not angry that they're trying to snipe me, and I'm not going to hurt you because of it. In fact, I'm not here to harm you at all, or kidnap you, strap you to a nuclear missile, fenix you to Russia, or any other things that I've done to your predecessors. They'd survive their experiences, of course. While I hadn't made things easy for the heroes to rescue them, I'd made it possible. The point had never been to harm the president, but to remind him of his mortality, while using the distraction to carry out some of my other aims. I've always been a fan of knocking over at least two birds with one stone. Dennis, what do you want? He burst out. He's thrown a mixture of fear and anger. I really couldn't blame him. He'd no doubt been assured by the effectiveness of the defenses around the White House, and I'd more or less strolled through them without breaking step. Finally, I said, rolling my eyes a little more theatrically than the question truly required. I've been waiting for you to ask that question since I got you. It's simple. I'm here to let you know that I will be retiring as a supervillain and handing myself over to the authorities in precisely one week's time at, let us say, uh, the Lincoln Memorial... He stared at me. You're, you're what? Retiring, I repeated, surrendering myself to the authorities. Do you wish me to use words of only one syllable? His stare of disbelief redoubled. Uh, are you joking? Is this some kind of riddle or trick? Not in the slightest, I assured him blithely. The reason is simplicity itself. There is little I cannot do, and I find I've begun to approach the limits of my imagination. I was lying, of course, but he didn't need to know that. Everything I've ever aspired to achieve, I've done, up to and including rulership of the United States itself. Not for long, of course. 
I didn't want to rule the country. I wanted to have once ruled it. He frowned. You've never taken over the United States. I'm sure I would have recalled it. Oh, you remember it, but you don't know what you're remembering. I smiled, recalling my triumph at the time. Seven years ago, April Fool's Day, your predecessor was in the first year of an office, still finding his speech. I spirited him away in the middle of the night and replaced him with a highly complex robot double. My protege signed several executive orders and played a number of pranks on White House staff through the course of the day, including yourself, as I recall. After he retired to bed, I reversed the swap. But for that day, I literally was the President of the United States. He stared at me, his jaw dropping. And the next day, he couldn't remember anything he'd done. Everyone thought that he had a microstroke and suffered a loss of short-term memory, but they couldn't find any evidence of one. I gestured and gave him a slight bow. Voila! He shook his head. So now you want to retire, just like that, and hand yourself into the authorities, so that I may have a fair trial as per the law of the land, I added, with the jury of my peers, of course, if you can find anyone who fits the description. And you'll just submit yourself to whatever prison term the judge decides on. His tone was decidedly skeptical at this point. So long as I do not consider it overly unfair, I countered. I've never murdered anyone who didn't actually deserve it, so I would consider any reference towards the death penalty to be a rather pushing your luck. What about life imprisonment without parole? He shot back. If you die behind bars, that's more than less the same as being executed. Not so. I shook my head. Many inmates have used lengthy prison terms to improve their education or even write books. Given that I intend to live at least 150, I feel that I might have an epic science fiction or fantasy series in me. Perhaps even a movie deal. I turned my head slightly, bringing my more esoteric senses into play. Ah, here come the big guns. I do not wish to endanger you or any of your minions, so I bid you good day. Remember, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in one week. My awareness of incoming peril intensified, and I triggered the teleport function on my belt buckle. Time slowed dramatically for me, a side effect of the wormhole mechanism altering the laws of physics so that it could whisk me across the country in the blink of an eye. An instant later, I saw the window bulging inwards, and Turbo Max's fist impacted the spot where the sniper round had struck. Already weakened, the barrier shattered dramatically, and the hero emerged into the Oval Office. When he saw the president sitting at his desk, unharmed, he turned at super speed towards me. I gave him a cheery wave and saw his features contort with anger, but before he could get halfway to me, the teleport activated fully and dragged me away. One week later, as promised, I teleported into Washington, D.C. to hand myself over to the authorities. The familiar sight of flashing red and blue lights was easy to see on my approach, with the police cars in almost a solid block around the area. A bunch of officers were awaiting me at the foot of the steps, complete with manacles but to adorn man three times my strength. I could also see SWAT officers standing in body armor, carrying riot shields and assault rifles. It was almost cute, the way they seemed to think that their accoutrements would be of any good if I chose to cause trouble. But I suppose everyone needs their security blanket. Slowly, so as to not startle anyone, I drifted down to the ground level at the far end of the reflecting pool. Step by step, 
Fully aware that my actions would be seen as a height of arrogance, I walked along the surface of the water, allowing my anti-grav boots to barely ripple the pool as I passed by. To be honest, they would be entirely correct. I am indeed a particularly arrogant individual. However, I consider my arrogance entirely justified. I'm really good at what I do. Stop right there! The shout came from above me. I paused, allowing an exaggerated frown to cross my features for the benefit of the multitudinous cameras that were undoubtedly recording my progress, and turned to look upwards. Precisely as I had anticipated Turbo Max and his team, I truly could not be bothered keeping up with whatever tiresomely pretentious title that they saddled themselves with were flying down towards me. Every line of their spandex-clad bodies taut with anger. The hero himself, leading the pack, swooped low over the water and then came to hover directly in front of me. His oversized gauntlets, held out like a traffic policeman's, barred my forward progress. Excuse me, I said politely, but I have an appointment to be arrested just over there. Kindly get out of my way, please. You are not going anywhere, he bellowed, veins bulging in his forehead. You have made fools of the law too many times. You're going down now. Really? I raised an eyebrow. I practiced assiduously in the mirror for just such an eventuality and looked him up and down. Just to you. Do you do recall the end result from when you attempted to single-handedly prevent me from stealing Fort Knox, yes? How long did it take you to get home after I teleported you to the middle of the Sahara? He sought an answer. I triggered my palm control, short-jumping me through where Turbomax was hovering, then continued my unhurried stroll towards my destiny. Turbomax once more reacted predictably flying directly at my back while kicking in his power gauntlets and super speed. The impact, if he struck me, would have been equivalent to having a bulldozer land on me from a hundred yards up. Survival at that point would have been a problematic at best. He didn't strike me, of course. His fists came to within two feet of me. My personal protection field activated and teleported him, not to the Sahara this time. He didn't move from the spot, in fact, what I did was instead rotate his inertial frame of reference by 90 degrees. I could have made it so that he was redirected upwards, or even sideways. I didn't. Lying at full speed, gauntlets crackling with enough kinetic energy to turn any two ordinary people into pink mist by tapping them on the shoulder, he rocketed straight down, hitting first the reflecting pool, reflecting no longer, and then the concrete floor of the feature. Water flashed to steam over a large area, then chunks of concrete shattered upwards out of the crater he just created. Unbothered by the steam and the debris both, I had anticipated the scenario and taken precautions. I walked onwards, even as the water beneath my feet went everywhere but where it was supposed to. The rest of the team hurtled down to attack, but I skipped jump forward again, this time appearing just before the group of US Federal Marshals awaiting me, Gentlemen, I greeted them, would you prefer my hands before or behind me? I assure you, I will not make an ounce of difference. I intend to allow myself to be taken into custody, no matter how hard the heroes fight against it. No! bellowed Laserfist, loosing a flurry of shots at me. I'd already widened my protective field so that the marshals were simply protected. The lasers went skyward as the field rotated the chunks of air that they were slicing through. 
You don't just get to walk away. Half turning towards him, I raise my voice enough to reach his ears. Oh, but I do. Once I'm in custody, you are legally not permitted to attack me. Their response was as idiotic as I expected it to be. Over the years, I'd encountered Tobermax on numerous occasions, along with whoever he had persuaded to join his team and fight alongside him. On each and every occasion, I'd handed them a thorough and humiliating trouncing, then gone along on my merry way. He'd brought all of them along on this occasion, and it seemed the sight of me peacefully refuting their chance to wreak bloody revenge was too much for them to bear. Attack after attack rained down upon me, rather upon us, for it seemed that some of the so-called heroes possessed ranged abilities rather lacking in precision. I continued to protect myself and the marshals, even as the SWAT teams retreated behind their shields, and the Lincoln Memorial suffered quite a lot of incidental damage. One of the marshals stepped forward and raised his voice. Can you do something? His tone wasn't quite pleading, but it was definitely making a firm request. I shrugged, even as my protection field shrank a little. It was all for show, of course. I'd packed extra energy cores, just in case. To make matters clear, are you requesting that I subdue the heroes currently attempting to kill both myself and you fine gentlemen? He glanced at each other, then looked at me. Yes! declared the one who had made the request. Very well, then. I turned towards the assembled heroes and Turbomax, who had just clawed his way out of the crater and was now dripping wet. With a simple gesture, I triggered the return to sender option, targeting each of the attacking heroes with a concentrated blast that would suffice to knock them insensible without outright killing them. It is sad, sad world when villains spend more care in non-lethal attacks than heroes do. As they fell to the ground, I turned once more to the marshals. Now I believe you had a duty to perform. The manacles closed over my wrists, and for the first time, I was the subject of a Miranda reading. Two more experiences to cross off my bucket list. I peacefully allowed them to lead me away to a waiting armored truck, while other law enforcement personnel moved in to scoop up the malcontent heroes. A week later, I stood in open court while the manacles were ceremoniously removed from my wrists. The judge, who had been presiding over the case, looked as though he had been sucking on lemons for the entirety of the week, which was an actual possibility. We have made an earnest and thorough effort to select jurors who would be both members of the superpowered community and impartial to your case, and not one potential member of this panel has yet to make it through screening... As he read off the prepared statement, he gritted his teeth as though he wanted to tear it to shreds. Due to the 17 separate attempts by superheroes on your life, even when you were in Supermax solitary, it has been deemed that to merely hold you in custody is a risk to life and limb of your guards. As we can neither hold you nor try you, the extraditionary decision has been made to release you under your own recognizance. You could scarcely do more damage out there. You're free to go. I nodded respectfully. Thank you, Your Honor. Turning, I strolled nonchalantly from the courthouse. I didn't even have to worry about looking over my shoulders anymore. Many of the heroes were now under arrest for their attacks on my life, and the rest were keeping their heads down after heavy scrutiny from the media. For myself, I was a free man. All according 
Dublin. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1242. Story number two. The Cannon Race, written by Perilous Platypus. It's winnable, Admiral Perot Halsek said. When the Exitori did not respond, Berio continued. And it is worth winning. Berio expected some hesitation on the Exitori's part. Even as the campaign was winnable, he was clearly a political loser. Executory Dalaye was less than a year into her term and she was already mired in crisis. Two lost deployments tended to do that. That they had been sent 23 and 56 years before she had arrived into office mattered little. The public did not like to hear about slaughtered colonists, rooted armies and lost worlds, particularly when they could experience the horrors firsthand by tapping into the graphic neurographs careening madly about the interverse. War was unpopular, losing one more so. Ario sympathized with Della's position. This was unfortunate timing, but timing did not change the facts, and ignoring the facts was folly. They are well within the parameters, Perio tried again, only to be cut off by Della's raised hand. I understand the situation, Admiral. She leaned back at a chair and put her foot down and then kicked, causing the chair to slowly rotate in a circle. Turning about made her look young. She was young. Not that it mattered. She was a killer through and through. Red, born, trained, and tested. One didn't arrive at the Exitari chair at Della's age without being a dupe or a butcher. Della was no dupe. There was little to be gained by pressing onward. Della had all the information needed, and his counsel had already been offered. So... He watched in silence as she twirled, waiting for her answer. After the fifth circuit, she pulled her leg back up and tucked it under her. Returning to her perched position, Peria often saw her occupy. Also, childish. Was it a matter of comfort, or just one more way to make herself appear less than she was? A means of making people underestimate her. The twirling, the perching, the lilting voice, the ever-changing hair. Heria had studied her closely, and he could never confidently say what she was about. Whenever he felt like he had made inroads, she changed the pattern. Tomorrow, she would be sitting straight, the lilt would be gone, and Della before him would be gone. But the Della behind these shifting masks would stay the same. A killer. Perio made sure to never forget that in these interactions. I have decided, Della said. She let the pause follow, her eyes on Perot, daring him to prompt her. Perio did not take the bait. He projected calm and indifference, a stolid military man simply awaiting his orders. We will deploy. Perio's surprise must have shown on his face because the small smirk now appeared on Della's. Surprised, Admiral? Perio shrugged. It is not the decision your predecessor would have made. The Exitari giggled now. Giggling was also not something her predecessor would have done. No, I suppose not. The giggle died out. But I'm not my predecessor. No, am I? No, executory, you are not. Della tapped a finger to her and looked slightly upwards. I wonder what the past executory Solari would have done. The tapping stopped and her eyes came back to Perio's. What do you think? Perio shrugged. 
he had a little desire to offer and engage in the topic of the past Exitari. Not out of any sense of loyalty for the uh, craven politician that Solari would bend, but more because little could be gained from a member of the military speculating as to the motives and goals of a civilian command. Della huffed out a sigh. Ah, how very diplomatic of you, Admiral. And just when I thought that we were going to be friends. I am not very friendly, Perio replied. Those types make of our very best friends. Low maintenance. She leaned forward, closing the distance between them. Solari would have tucked his sack up into his crack and pocketed so hard his shriveled balls would have turned to diamonds. Perio blinked. The giggle returned. Yes, well, um, was all Perio could think to offer. The writing is on the wall, Admiral, literally. She gestured towards the data being projected against the wall beside them, depicting the various campaigns and their last known status. We fight or we lose. The politics are fact, and perhaps so am I, but I am young enough to actually experience the consequences of inaction. She gestured towards the wall, and a new overlay appeared, depicting a dense set of calculations tied to various campaigns along with threat assessments. Barrier stared at the wall. The overlay had not come from him. It seemed to be a duplication of the particularly bad contingency fork his intelligence resources had assembled. Though, there were some variances. Where did you get this? The foot unfurled from beneath Della and she kicked off once more. When her back was to him, she spoke. It was there in the data. Some massaging required, a few assumptions on behalf of our nemesis and so forth, but the thrust of it all is quite clear. Her chair came to a stop and her facing him once more. They're in the mud now. In five years, they'll be in the core. If we're lucky, we've got ten years before Earth is a target. We need to deny them a staging ground. Her numbers were even more dire than his own. But he agreed with the sentiment. That is correct. We deploy and defend now. But you just said... She waved her hand again, and the overlay shifted. A new set of calculations appeared along with a set of lines emerging from Earth in a variety of directions, each line connected with another planet. Some then had lines emerging from them, regardless of the intervening stops, all lines eventually headed in the same direction. The frontier. Perio corrected himself. No, not the frontier. The border. The ever-collapsing line between them and the Gorm. We deploy and destroy, Admiral. Another flick of a hand and a new image appeared, depicting a long, oblong shape with a series of rings in front of it. Some breakthroughs have been achieved. Is that... Perio drifted off. It is. The cannon is ready, Admiral, Della said, fixing him with an intense stare. Traversal at a fraction of the time at orders of magnitude less cost. Perio had heard about the area of research, but always in the context of resupply. It was a theoretical way to send logistical support to the deployments without the cost of building up a full interstellar ship. No one had discussed utilizing it for actually sending troops. They would have no way back. Perhaps I'm misunderstanding, Executory. No, Admiral. You are understanding perfectly. It would be a one-way trip, Perio said. Just like the rest of them. I can't see the Parliament. I will worry about that, Admiral. You worry about how to make it happen once it is approved. Perio turned towards the wall and began to count. I'll save you the time. 73 campaigns, 22 directs in the initial, 12 harvest colonies to fund, and 51 secondaries. 680 million people deployed in total. 
How, um, how will you convince them? Perry asked. It's simple. I'll give them a taste of the Atlantic. End of story. Story number one. Humans are the best friends and the worst enemies. Written by TCGM. You're facing a terrestrial issue and your solution is to invade the humans. Are you off your fecking neurons? I can see that you're serious about this, so I shall give you this warning once and declare that none amongst my license of species shall help you. We're not suicidal as you clearly are. There is a saying among some species in many, many galaxies. If you go to Earth, do so as a friend or not at all. Yes, you may be a superior technologically and have a vastly larger army, but now. Your ships are indeed, in fact, far stronger than their exploratory ships the humans seem to contend to travel the galaxies in. I do agree with that. For now. Did you know that humans have the highest adaptability index seen in the known galaxy since the fall of the Devarful? I thought not, since you seem foolish enough to take this on. And no, I do not speak of habitability. Humans are limited by their death world's physiology. Though they can withstand harsh conditions much better than most of us non-humans, they are still locked to a fairly temperate climates without aid of their technology. Specialist species evolved to suit their harsh environment succeed far beyond where humans can. No, I'm talking about their cultural, ideological, and technological adaptability. Yes, technological. Humans are so good at adapting and reverse engineering other technologies. There are honestly projects taking place checking to see if they are a designed race. Possibly by the very devolval they look so alike. They have not found anything yet and it does seem to be a coincidence. But we all know how coincidence can come back and eat you during waste excretion. And their societal and ideological traits are uh, on their face slow to change until they suddenly aren't. Let me show you, before I finish my warning, what a human homeworld, Earth, looked like a while ago. Go ahead, take a look. Not much, is it? Other than its status as a death will and obvious racial differences, Earth and humanity look much like one of our planets a thousand or two thousand years ago. Very little spaceflight, no FTL, no fusion, and certainly nothing else that we take for granted in the modern galactic age. Only one planet truly their own, and another just beginning colonization procedure. That picture was taken 20 years ago, right before they were discovered by the Reshan, right before the invasion. You may notice they are not around anymore. You may also notice that Earth is much more advanced now, and that the humans have spread far. Perhaps not, having sat upon your high thrones and only deigned to retake a look at the galaxy when you wished to conquer one of us again. Perhaps you think this irrelevant and that nothing can stand against your might, as you always have. But I say this with the utmost glee and unshamed happiness. You are not the biggest threat around anymore. That new biggest threat, however, has not done anything bad to us. Oh no, far from it. Our galaxies have never had such effective inventors as they. 
nor seen the sheer torrent of ideas that flow from them to us, through us, and then back to them for further refinement. The entire pan-galactic neighborhood is prospering and starting to advance at a rapid rate, simply by riding the coattails of humans as we give them what we have and see them work with it, doing things we never thought of, and that includes our own societies and economies. They are truly incredible friends, and a welcome addition as far as we are concerned. But go ahead, Foka. Go to Earth. Do make sure, as I said earlier, to go as a friend, though. Nor not at all. For, if you choose otherwise, you may very well conquer the humans planet by planet and star by star until you reach their doorstep. But they will fight like the hell only death wilders can provide. Adapt your own power against you, slow your advance to a standstill, and even if they have to fight you all the way back to the mouth of the few caves of their home world, they will eventually turn the tide and push back. And once they start pushing back, if you've managed to make them fear you as much as we used to, they will never stop. They'll burn your worlds to ash and sunder your mighty towers from the sky. They will conquer, they consume, and take, and take, and take, until your civilization is ground to dust. They may save some of you. They did with the young ration. At least, until they learn what you do and have done to prisoners. Go, Foka, go. And let me watch as you burn for your hubris. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1243. Story number one. Jeff has a bad day in space. Written by Skullbomb Raging. Jeff had long since stopped screaming. As it turns out, after the initial shock of being sucked out of an airlock and deposited in the infinite void of space... It's actually quite dull. Now, all Jeff could think about was passing the time. he just finished taking his nutrient tablets about 10 minutes ago, and his suit had just been topped up on oxygen. So it's not like he wouldn't be dying in space anytime soon if things stayed the same. Jeff's gentle spin finally allowed him to see the damage of the shuttle that he was in but minutes ago. It was definitely beyond repair, and all of the other occupants were definitely dead. Not then that was a surprise to him at this point. He'd already tried every local channel in a panic a minute or two ago. He supposed that it was possible that one of the others did survive, but the communicator was simply broken by something other than during the collision with the asteroid. Jeff also just passed the point of assigning blame to people, like the pilot who Jeff was certain viewed himself as Han Soda or something. Or that moron who was constantly hitting on the pilot no matter how difficult the maneuver he was trying to pull. All that was pointless to consider now. Jeff couldn't help but consider the irony of the fact that he was on his way to study a starship engineering at a small university. And that his acceptance he spent so much time and energy to achieve was likely to be pointless now. He cursed the fact that his birth planet was too poor and out of the way to afford proper public transport. This trip had taken almost all of Jeff's leftover savings and now was probably going to lead to his slow and painful death. 
If Jeff survived this, he swore to write the worst review possible. It was a few days before something Jeff had not even considered to be unlikelihood of. A skimmer stopped flying towards where they had come to sell the hyperfuel. It was just after Jeff had finished calculating 2 to the power of 1,000 out of sheer boredom when he saw them. He flapped his arms around as much as he could to draw attention to himself, sending him into an almost nauseating random spin. He would worry about throwing up later. He wasn't going to let that chance go so easily. In a manner of seconds, an alien race he couldn't remember the name of hailed him through short-range comms. The nasally voice addressed him. Human, are you stranded out in space? No, I'm just on vacation and dancing in the infinite cold of space. Oh, sorry for bothering you then. The alien then broke off comms. Jeff immediately rehailed him. Don't hang up on me, you idiots! But you said sarcasm! Look it up! Would it be easier for you to just explain? No! I'm going to die on this hill. This is more important than being rescued. But you're not on a hill. Furthermore, just look it up. After several minutes of awkward silence, as Jeff waited for the aliens to look up the definition of the same word, he hung on the outside of his door until he moved out of his parents' house. They hailed him again. I am afraid I do not quite understand the purpose of it, but we understand your meaning. Jeff exhaled. Can I please be taken out of space now? Yes, the alien replied, as they activated their rescue system. Now that Jeff could see them face to face, he remembered that the names of the aliens that had just saved him from certain demise was the Zenkeltai. They were galactically considered the best at building something to an exact set of measurements, and the worst at understanding nuance of humor and language. Jeff recalled their gesture of apology being a simple bow and executed it. I'm sorry for yelling at you guys. I've been in space for a long time and was a bit on edge. The captain looked down at Jeff, who was about half of his size, with a completely expressionless face. I am uncertain what edges you have to do with the situation, but I accept your apology on behalf of myself and the crew at large as well. Jeff tried not to be annoyed by the captain's lack of understanding of subtext, to mixed success. I am glad to hear that. Uh, can you drop me up at Renup University? I was on my way there before my shuttle was destroyed. The captain blinked once. I had heard the humans were quite the daredevils, but be dropped off is a new concept to me. Tell me, from how high were you planning to be dropped off? Jeff silently took back the apology he just gave. It's a figure of speech. Can you please take me to there and uh, let me get off the ship in a normal way? Yes, said the captain as he turned around and headed towards his seat. Jeff stood there for a moment before looking for a Zenkeltai who didn't look busy. After he'd found such a person, he walked up to them. So, um, what do you guys do for fun around here? What is fun, please? Jeff tried not to scream. Eventually, Jeff was brought to Renup University, as promised. His mental state had definitely deteriorated from the lack of stimulus during the long space flight. At least Jeff wasn't still floating in space, he reminded himself. Jeff walked into the grass and laid down on top of it, rubbing his face against the wondrously green foliage. Human Jeff, are you feeling ill? The captain asked. Nope, just enjoying our little slice of domesticated flora we call grass. 
Is this your sarcasm again? Jeff looked over on his back. I'm glad you remember that word, uh, but no, I really mean it this time. The captain blinked. I failed to see the meaning in that action, but by all means proceed then. I will, my friend. I will. The captain blinked again. What is friend, please? Jeff thought for a moment. It'll be easier for you to look it up, I think. The captain set the task of looking it up. Meanwhile, Jeff stood and started walking towards the sign which read admissions office. I'm going to get checked in now. Thanks for the ride, you guys. The captain didn't look up as he typed away at his data pad. Goodbye, Jeff. It took Jeff a while to explain why he was a week late for the start of the semester to the desk lady. She didn't seem that she believed him as far as he could tell, but she definitely wasn't contradicting him in any way. So maybe she just didn't care. Here's your paperwork to fill. Please bring it back once you're done doing so. Sure thing. All right, Jeff thought. Let's put all that crashing shuttle business behind us and get back on track. Before Jeff could even start putting pen to paper, all of the screen feeds changed to that of a red shark lady in a fancy yet worn uniform. She then spoke. Hello, everyone. I am Rendus Vargan. Surrender all of your belongings or die to my pirate fleet. Jeff's eye twitched. End of part one. Story number two. Jeff has a bad day at Renup University. Written by Skull Bomb Raging. Jeff wasn't sure if he wanted to burst into a fit of rage or a ball of tears. He briefly considered both simultaneously, but decided that it was unlikely to help his current predicament. Instead of either option, he walked out the door of the admission office and looked up into the sky. What he'd saw would make any other man, woman, or child fall to the knees in fear. Likely gibbering some incomprehensible plea for mercy. Jeff, however, just became depressed. Above him in the sky was enough space vessels to fill the entire field of vision. From one periphery to the other, he could see the insignia of four shark's teeth meeting point to point on a circle. Essentially, the Jolly Roger of this corner of space. Jeff quietly muttered some choice phrases such as, Jeff, university will be fun, and don't worry, Jeff, you won't be attacked by pirates at uni. You're being paranoid. Jeff was left standing, racking his brain for solutions to this idiotic crisis. It was when all screened sharky denizens all clapped their hands at once. No response, you know, I was really hoping that you would at least pretend to submit or something to buy yourself some time to escape with the experimental drive. But we can just take it instead of what we have to, uh... A single ship suddenly shot a massive round into a nearby building, evaporating all the top floors instantly and sending shrapnel everywhere. Your choice, of course. Jeff was so done with the situation that if his doneness was likened to a cake... All one's prod of choice would fight was an impenetrable lump of sugar. Jeff started sprinting towards the faculty office before the desk lady ran out the door and called out to him. Um, sir, if you don't mind, the desk lady began. If you ask for the clipboard back, I'm going to shove it up your ass. Jeff interrupted, still running. Carry on, sir, the lady replied, her voice a bit shaky this time. When Jeff arrived at his destination, he found a mishmash of species of every kind he heard in the massive panic. How do they know about the experimental drive? It must be a mole. What are we going to do? Jeff calmly raised a hand, and finally everyone noticed him one by one. 
Once everyone was too stunned to continue panicking, Jeff spoke. I have a plan. It's terrible, but it is something, if there's nothing else that you can think of. The experimental dry rose out of the ground. It was a true marvel of technological prowess. And they were giving it to the pirates. Nobody else would do it, so Jeff was elected as a representative of his plan's execution. Hey there, um, what, what was your name again? Jeff asked over the bubble for comms. All of the staff and scientists congregated in a small boardroom, looked at him in horror. Jeff waved them off. That's off, I'm trying to talk. On the other end, a familiar voice spoke with a tiny tinge of anger. You're certainly Gagats, whoever you are. I am Renda Sparkin, the Pirate Queen. To whom am I speaking? Jeff, said Jeff. Oh, so, uh, Jeff, what absolute pleasure can I attribute to your hail? With each syllable that Randus over-enunciated, Jeff could practically hear her teeth grinding together. Oh, I was going to wheel the experimental drive onto your ship. Should I tell them to put it back? Rendus was clearly a single sideways remark from exploding completely. No, that's perfect for me. Make sure to bring it to the center field immediately. For every minute you waste, I'm going to punch a hole in the building until there are none left. Okay, hold on a moment. Jeff put his hand over the receiver and turned to the nearest scientist. How heavy is the drive? The scientist shook off the stunned look just for long enough to make a speech with a little too much self-importance given the current circumstances. Our brilliant design has managed to make the drive that's both lightweight and efficient. How much does it weigh? Jeff stressed. In this gravity, about 150 pounds. Thank you. Jeff took his hand off the receiver. Yeah, I can get it to you in a minute or two. You better hurry, or I'll start the timer, Jeff. Jeff disconnected the transmission before striding across the room and picking up the drive with both hands. All right, see you guys later. Wait, why did you antagonize her so much? Jeff stopped before walking out the door. It's simple. I made her so angry that she has no choice but to kill me herself. That way, she won't just leave me behind until I'm a corpse. Apparently, that wasn't a satisfactory answer, according to the staff. But Jeff wasn't in the mood to elaborate, so he just ignored them instead. Jeff then did exactly as planned. He brought the drive to the center field, where a shuttle waited for him. All of the five pirates stood there like morons as he carried the drive without any sort of protection or lifting equipment. Hey, um, could you help me with this? It's really heavy, Jeff asked. The pirates looked at each other for a moment. Jeff rolled his eyes. Would you rather I dropped it? That got him the help to load the drive. As the shuttle lifted into the air, Jeff recounted the pirates to make sure that he wasn't missing any. There was a sixth in the pilot seat. Jeff nodded inwardly. Glad he checked. As soon as the pirates were distracted, doing who knows what stupid game they play, Jeff quietly unlatched his helmet, pulled out a wrench that he had hidden inside his suit, and checked all of his seals once. Then he grabbed the handle to brace himself as he threw the wrench through the shuttle cockpit's glass. Three pirates died of suffocation. In moments, all of the others turned to Jeff. Jeff picked up a blaster from one of the newly minted corpses and sprayed into the two pirates remaining in the chamber before they could get a bead. The final pirate walked out of the cockpit, gun in hand, only to meet the butt of Jeff's borrowed blaster to his helmet, which obviously shattered on impact. Jeff checked the former pilot for keys before going into the cockpit. The cockpit had its heading set to collide with what was probably the flagship. 
Using his general knowledge of spaceship design, he guessed where the hyperdrive would be and set heading for there instead of the hangar bay as planned. As he waited, Jeff hooked an experimental drive into the shuttle systems. Jeff had more than once considered ignoring the plan and just running away with the drive if he got this far by some miracle, even as he was pitching it to the staff back on Planetside. But every time he did, he thought about how many people lived down there. He just couldn't do it. Jeff hooked the brakes into the shuttle to the go system of the experimental drive and buckled himself into the shuttle in every way that he could think of. Then he gunned it. It was mere moments before the shuttle slammed into the hull of the flagship. Jeff wasn't sure how long he was unconscious for, but it must not have been long, because he wasn't dead yet, even though he was being shot at. Jeff looked around and saw the hyperdrive core across the room. He took a deep breath. He got himself out of the pilot's seat, picked up the blaster, hit the shuttle's brake pedal, and ran for his life. Jeff tried to point the blaster at the general direction of the nearest pirates, but he was too busy sprinting to deal with any significant damage. He weaved in and out of cover, breaking line of sight every chance he had. It was at this point Jeff asked himself why it was all his stupidest plans worked and none of his well-thought-out ones did. Jeff ducked behind a console for the ship's hyperlight drive and started applying sealant to all of the new holes in his flesh and suit. It stung like nothing else, but it would keep him from dying for now so he didn't care. Jeff busted open the side panel of the console, exposing a myriad of wires. He crossed about seven different sets, and then his fingers. Suddenly, he was on his rear, and the red shark lady in a spacesuit was holding a gun point-blank. Jeff, I presume? Jeff nodded. Right, you are, Rendas. Through her helmet, he could barely make out the poorly restrained anger. So you did remember? Honestly, no, not at first. I was busy cursing my bad luck at the time. Renders chuckled. Well, it's a natural reaction to have to being raided by a pirate queen. Renders put a blaster pistol against Jeff Helmet. Any last words, Jeff? Say, Renders, before you shoot me, how long does it take your hyperdrive to start? That's a stupid last request, but I'll oblige you about 12 seconds. Jeff sighed in relief. Oh, that's good to hear. I was afraid I messed up the timing. Of what? Suddenly, the ship lurched and began groaning. You see, Renders, there's a strange thing that happens when a hyperdrive activates while you're already in hyperspace. You can go into an even faster place, which they call exponential hyperspace. Usually, when this happens, everything within a certain radius of your starting position is ripped in with you, and everything is crushed into pieces. The experimental drive, you activated it inside my ship. That hunk of junk already enters exceptional hyperspace. Jeff nodded. What is the space above that, do you think? Double exponential? Everyone on the ground looked up into the sky and watched as all the pirate ships were sucked into a hyperspace anomaly. Jeff had saved countless lives that day through his sacrifice, and later on they would build a statue in his honor. Jeff found himself floating aimlessly in space for the second time in a matter of days and exhaled hard. Again, he was all alone. A short-range comms hail appeared on his HUD. He accepted it. A familiar, sharky voice from the other end. I hate you so much. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1244
Story number one. I choose you. Written by Press Pauls to join. Why do you keep yelling that? Etherix clicked from a perch. Twin pairs of wings buzzing with an annoyance that I couldn't help but smirk at. Don't worry about it. Gritting my teeth, I did my part about duo and reattached down the last of the restraints. It's a human thing. Release me, human. A very naughty space lizard hissed down at me, thrashing, unfortunately, five free tail that I probably should have strapped down to. Release me at once. Ah, see, uh, we tried the nice way once. Then you escaped from those very nice police officers and crashed their car into a school. Now you get the express route. I laughed, typing in the code for our nearest branch office and blowing the prisoner's transport sled a kiss as it blasted off again. It even had a twinkle, plasma pulse jets glittering as it disappeared into the night. That isn't an answer, Hitherix chittered, fluttering up and hovering in front of my face. I looked it up, you know. Nothing on the extranet explains it. Yeah, I chuckled, offering my forearm once as I was done feeding nostalgic. It's pretty old, the human thing. Well, explain it. I am trying to figure out how. Really? I was racking my brain. How did you explain it? X-ray 113. My radio chirped, interrupting a conversation I didn't want to have for the first place. Are you 1098? 10-4, I answered, offering a thorax the least smug shrug that I could manage, content that I dodged it another time. Got something for us? Possible 1066 on 31 and Hakar. RP is across the street in the El Sishi Delhi. States they're witnessing a hotel x-ray dealing a scalar and blitz in the alleyway. The tired voice of my tired and true dispatcher sighed. Probably exhausted from a fifth 16-hour shift in a row. Xeno hours were a hot crock of, uh, Oh, we can get there fast, I know a shortcut. My partner chirped happily wiggling her needles for hands happily before she started to point down nearby anyway. Apparently, forgetting about her integration entirely at the thought of yet another battle. She just had to be a bee drill. I was allergic to bees. X-ray 113 is 1049, nodding to Itherax. I led her hand of the directions, her hypersensitive antennae leading us down a confusing maze of side alleys and busy sidewalks. I could have sworn took twice as long as the direct route, though I just gave Ithrax more of a chance to complain. Apparently the Hexani's scent was as potent as it was unpleasant. Ithrax littering her wings with annoyance, and then uttered disgust with the closer we got. Thankfully the chemical smelled like roses to my nose, which was fitting seeing that the Hexani looked like an awful lot like a Ishtaka, a flowery voice cursed. The drug-dealing Resilia. Sorry. Hexani in question, spotting us the second we rounded the corner. It's the cops. Why do they always have to scatter just to make things harder? But at least I had a secret weapon ready so our main perp wouldn't get away. Itherax, I choose you! What does that? Itherax started to complain just as I wound up with my throwing arm. Four years of varsity training me well as an XE-9 unit, but all I had to do was get her going in the right direction anyways. Itherax ganging onto her targets like a little heat-seeking missile once she was thrown. Me.
Bullseye! I yelled excitedly. It ranks as Twinedle hitting its mark spot on. The Hexani, on the other hand, never had a chance. The surprising legal poison super effective as she fainted on the spot. Which meant, now came the fun part. Wrangling her partners before they had a chance to get away. I always loved Team Rocket episodes. Jenny, I swear on my brood, Nate, if you don't explain that, then we're done. End of story. Story number two. Maintenance reports written by Chain Blue. Administrator Snurt of the Mercator Trade Station LF-0017 watched as Maintenance Chief William J. Bull Cable unceremoniously sat down in an uncomfortable chair in the administration's ostentatious office. Administrator Snurt could have easily had a comfortable chair installed, but chose not to. One's subordinates should never get too comfortable around their superior, after all. The human was dressed in his customary, slovenly, lubricated, stained technician's coveralls. The maintenance chief insisted that everyone refer to him as Bill, even though the word was phonically identical to a frail, borderline obscene turn for a comically oversized Mercator male reproductive organ. Snurt got around this by referring to him as Chief. Chief, I called you here today to clear up some discrepancies in some maintenance reports. I explained Administrator Snurt. I've sent the documents in question to your pad, Snurt said. The chief nodded and tapped a few times on his pad. Ready when you are, sir, said Bill stoically. Item one, said Administrator Snurt. The means of repair to the high-band data antenna is listed as percussive maintenance. Can you explain that? Bill deadpanned. Technician Smoot went out to fix and repair pod and accidentally ran into the antenna, and it started working again. Snurt twitched. I, um, see, Snurt said. On to item two then, said Snurt. Maintenance pod Zeta OBDI system sent a report that the thrusters were offline during the flight, and the log says that it was addressed by rapid power cycling. That was Smoot again, said Bull. When he bounced off the antenna, the thrusters were sent into safe mode and shut down. So he popped open an access panel on the controls and rapidly connected and disconnected main power a few times. That tricked the computer into thinking that it had been through enough self-checks to reactivate everything. Snurt took in a long, unsteady breath and spoke in a tight voice. And in the subsequent medical report from the maintenance hangar, you wrote that the incident occurred due to an NPI error and was solved by organic grounding. Smoot accidentally knocked a repulsor lead loose during the power cycling operation. And when technician Pakra was helping settle the pod into its berth in the maintenance hangar, it zapped him a bit. As you can see in my report, he was not seriously harmed by the incident, and the medical issue was caused by one of Pakra's grav spanners slipping out of his hand and contacting Smoot's cranium, replied Chief Bill. It slipped from Pakra's hand after technician Smoot was out of the pond, was rushing towards the hangar exit door, flew 12 meters, and struck Smoot in the back of the head, asked Snurt incredulously. Gravitational anomaly, replied Chief Bill. Snurt buried his face into the two of his four hands and sighed. Fine, Chief. Last one. Please enlighten me as to the events of Ambassador. 
Slurt made a series of clacking sounds, ending with whistling sounds. Personal, yet. Uh, just like it says in the report, Administrator, said Bull. The ambassador was returning to the station, and his pilot had to unexpectedly dodge a repair pod that lost thrusters. A rapid change of course caused a minor stress fracture in the decorative hull plating, said Bull. We offered to fix it for free of charge to help smooth things over, concluded the chief. The security video shows Smoot using a plasma torch to remove what appeared to be a stubborn bolt on the damaged hull panel, said Snurt. He attempted to thermally reconfigure the bolt, replied the chief. It can't be stuck if it is liquid. He set the ship on fire, exclaimed the administrator. Exothermic system response, said the chief. Their fuel tanks exploded, screeched the administrator. Kinetic disassembly, said the chief. Don't worry, though, Technician Smoot wasn't injured at all. Noted Chief Bond. He subjected the ship to a pneumatic departure before it exploded, said Bill. He hit the emergency decompression button on the outer wall panel when he ran from the hangar and blew the ship and 150,000 credits of tools and supplies into space, screamed Snut. Get the... Markator, word for anatomically unlikely and probably illegal attempted reproductive act. Out! yelled the administrator Snurt, and he threw his pad against the wall. Chief Bull was almost out the door when he turned his head to see administrator Snurt, head down on the desk, sobbing. I'll write that up as a gravitational anomaly resulting in a kinetic disassembly of your pad, and have a new one sent up. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1245 Vandalize for Victory Humans Have a Strange Views on Honor Written by SlowAD2584 The War Council was appalled. The General Lord Commander of all war operations against the human foe stood before the military tribunal, still oddly wearing his field command helmet for the hearing. What is the meaning of the ceasefire against these pitiful humans? How can you possibly justify the assurance of peace? And why are you wearing that ridiculous thing still? Your bearing does not represent your family heritage very well. Not at all, I must say. The general shifted uncomfortably. This hearing was very significant, and his family honor would suffer, indeed. Several titles of barony over a moon or two will be revoked over this, certainly. Honor and reputation was very important, after all. The family heraldry may even get a black mark upon it for the centuries to come, because of this. Those damnable humans. Members of the tribunal, my helmet is still bored for reasons that will become clear at the end of this inquiry. I'm sorry to insist, General, that you remove your combat helmet this instant. Your honors demand it. Reluctantly, the general removed his helmet and stood there in shame. I, I do not want to say what happened to you. Why would you ever dream to do such a dishonorable thing? The general was indeed in a sorry state. Both of his horns were broken, splintered into shameful stumps. His fangs that in bio-records were remarkably very nobly long. All four ripped out, revealing disgusting basil pink gum pits. Something only convicted criminals had to live with for the rest of their lives in slavery. Indeed, the once noble general looked very much like a lowest commoner, plebeian slave. 
Even as a disfigured criminal, it was appalling. Worst of all, the regal tattoos up the left and right side of his face were, uh, obliterated. Somehow, the ink under the skin was disrupted. The marks and deeply ceremonial awards were unrecognizable. Yes, I know. I can never return to my home or family after this. He waved his hand to indicate his face. I made a mistake of being alone near some of the humans. They got too close and overpowered me for a few minutes before the gods could arrive. That was all the time it took. The outrage! Certainly those humans were... Oh yes, they were captured and are undeniably all dead. But, as they say, the damage was already done. This makes no sense. Why would such a defeated race be so savage? It's a human term. It's called spite, or maybe vindictive. They were defeated, yes. Overpowered, absolutely. Their weapons were utterly ineffective against our ships, our soldiers, our bases. They were unable to so much as scratch anything. The only thing they had left to attack was our honor. We never knew such an attack was even possible before meeting them. This is greatly disturbing. I demand details. How could these humans, which are utterly ineffective war gear, have possibly overcome this in any way to bring us all to a ceasefire table? This is unbelievable. Where is their honor? They, uh, say uh, they, they wear their honor on their sleeve, so it is easier to rip off when the crap gets real. And, uh, it's time to wipe their ass, um, or something like that. Uh, I never quite understood human biofunctions. The fighting started with the first ship-to-ship -ship engagements at their planet Saturn. It became quickly apparent that their weapons could not penetrate our armor, and was really only minimally effective at cosmetic damage on the surface of our ships. Their ships were slow and frail, easily devastated by our weaponry. Within a relatively short time, however, their tactics had changed. They focused their pitiful kinetic weaponry and missiles against our exterior comms antenna, the flag bridge windows, then the regal observation copulas. Also, any marks of heraldry, honorifics, merits, and even competency uh, chevrons were purposely obliterated before the plotting human craft were overcome and destroyed. By Jupiter, the human craft were no longer manned and were remote operated. But the debasing and stripping of all regalia increased. As time wore on, the humans somehow learned of other fragile, seeming inconsequential systems vulnerable to attack, and those were effectively scrubbed off of our ships repeatedly. So they knew they couldn't defeat us, then they bothered with resistance. And uh, to what end? Well, uh, there was a bit of logic to it, truth be told. It was clear now, in hindsight, with our communications and with IFF transponders and command interface nodes destroyed, our fleet line ships, which were still technically full operational for battle, had to repeatedly fall back to a field repair depot for repairs. By the time the same ship had returned six times for repairs and restoration of destroyed regalia, we began to understand. It was shameful to return again and again to get repaired. It mattered not at all how many victories we achieved over the humans. The dock workers began to jeer and roll their eyes, taking bets on which glorious fleet ship would return the most. 
There was even a human TKO scoreboard on display. The tribunal only stared in horror. They could not imagine such an awful situation, where the commoners were laughing at nobility. So how were the human ships enduring these encounters all this time? Oh, not a single one of them survived. They were still utterly ineffective, slow and frail, and were destroyed completely and almost instantly every single time. But they still had enough time to do their foul attacks. By the time we got to Mars, the humans had adapted their attacks and their drone ship's designs. They were able to survive 2% long and were able to more effectively stain our honor as well. How could this possibly have gotten any worse? The tribunal hesitantly asked. The situation was already untenable. They were all struggling to find a resolution, a way to correct or undo any of this. But every time they looked at the general's disfigured, obviously dishonored face, they could only shudder in despair. Have you heard of human uh, dirty baby diapers? Well, I hadn't either. But now I know the term as the most horrid of projectile ammunitions. Apparently the humans had billions of tons of these things stockpiled up for some reason and had rapidly designed and deployed a weapons to accurately shoot these through space at all of our ships at an astonishing rate. I will never get the sound of them splatting against our bridge and command control windows out of my mind ever again. Oh, and the smell. It was truly remarkable how it managed to get inside a pressurized ship interior, but uh, it always seemed to find a way. Human newborns are disgusting little horrors. The Battle over Mars was the most intense, relatively speaking. It appeared to be the human last stand. By the time all of the pathetic and abusive drone ships were obliterated, our entire fleet was stripped of essential comms, all regalia was defaced, and now all windows and airlock hatches were plastered with human baby waste. When we returned to the depot for repair, our cleaning prior to the final push, the jeers and disdain became howls of disgust and outrage from our own ship workers. It was beginning to get too much. What good is being victorious in battle if you always return to base brutalized and covered in crap? This tribunal was the strategic solution the humans' unwinnable situation was that they came up with. I realized at this point that uh, we haven't really faced any actual humans in person for some time now. This was all done via proxy. I knew that we could press on to Earth itself unopposed after the Martian last stand but looking forward to land and occupy their world with actual humans all around us day and night. Even after Mars during depot refit, I started to see the writing on the wall. But you did land on Earth, wiped out their military forces, and established the Beachhead base. Yes, we did. Ultimately, the human planetary weapon and war gear were still utterly ineffective. It did not take long. Yet, as I feared... We continue to suffer indignities at every opportunity. But your base had security defense, correct? And with no means at all to so much as damage anything. Oh, the sensors, uh, defenses, roving patrols, all of that. It turns out humans are very sneaky. They seem to have a way to see the world and how our foes would see it. How sensors see it. 
to predict their perspective and act accordingly. This allows them to identify our honor as something vulnerable, and also made it rather easy to evade our security scanners and patrols, it seems. Because every morning we found our empirical, regional, faction, and family herald flags and banners stolen, inevitably found burning in a bonfire outside the main base gate. Under all the security cameras and gun emplacements, I still cannot figure out exactly how they kept doing that. But they would have had to scale the walls, get to the top of the very central command bunker. Yes, yes, I know all of that. But the fact remained every morning, then the uniforms. Ugh. The humans discovered our field dress uniform cleaning service shuttles and uh, managed to... Uh, I still don't know how, but managed to swap our field dress uniforms with the most horrific dirty baby diapers. Our dress uniforms and all ribbons and awards were found burning in the flags one morning. At every single turn, our honor was vandalized, a term I learned from studying Cuban history during my time there. The word comes from a barbarian tribe that contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire. In the distant past, the vandal hordes defaced and ruined what they could not carry away with them, and the term stuck. Yes, our honor was being vandalized. There were attacks in person as well. Groups of humans with hammers, pliers, and de-tattoo lasers would infiltrate our base and pounce on a lone soldier, overpowering them to deface and demean them. Myself was included with such indignities to my eternal shame. I still have no idea where they came from or how the several rather burly humans could be so silent and unseen. The general gestured to his face again as he continued. The uniforms and my personal uh, mugging were the final straw. I knew our entire force would like nothing better than to leave those vile humans and never return. There was nothing to be gained here. We had already won and claimed the world. There was no opposition, militarily. But it was clear that there was nothing to be gained, only to suffer. There was even talk of glassing this honorable and repugnant world. I called for a ceasefire with the humans and a negotiation of our complete withdrawal. To our relief, we saw the attacks end completely. Our flags arose intact to see the next morning. It turns out this vandalism was not their core nature of being, but rather a tactical strategy that literally dishonored us to the negotiating table. There was the fastest evacuation withdrawal in recorded military history. We could not get away from them fast enough. The tribunal stated with a trembling voice, We we see now what you had to deal with and to endure. We will now convene and work on a solution to this appalling situation. What is the point of victory if we cannot return home retaining our honor? You were dismissed, General. Uh, obviously, the responsibilities of your office is no longer maintainable with your current uh, <laughs> disposition. You shall be retired with ignominy and the end of this tribunal hearing. I'm afraid... Uh, what will you do, j j j citizen With that, the general tore off his previous rank, insignia, name, heraldry, and other regalia, and left it all on the floor as he turned and left the tribunal, without saying another word, leaving the tribunal sputtering with impotence. He walked out of the military court and off the base towards the spaceport docks. There was a freighter there, its markings and honors violently torn away, 
and waiting on the dock was more than the entire ship's complement of servicemen. Similarly, mutilated and dishonorably discharged, and who stripped of all of their ranks and regalia as well. They greeted the retired general, struggling not to salute. Those days were over. This group was to be disposed. The Ronin, a certain human would label them. Others might call them the Free Blade. The general preferred that term. One of the senior rank Ronin asked the former general, What shall we do? Where can we go? The citizen gave a wry smile. Ironically enough, during the negotiations of withdrawal, the humans came to understand my future outlook after they had done, and, well, offered me a job with a very interesting dental and cosmetic surgery benefits plan. But, 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 but wouldn't that be treason? Ah, well, we were already judged as dishonored, are we not? Look at us! The humans taught me a new facet about honor, in the end. In a way, they freed my bonds and actually made me a free citizen. I hold no fealty anymore, no family heritage obligations. It feels as if a great weight was lifted that I never even realized was upon me. I am truly a free blade. The human leaders said to me in private one day, Honor is not about what others judge of you. If you let it be that way and take it fully to heart, honor is just chains of control over your very soul. Honor is what you know and feel in your heart. For your own benefit and satisfaction, when you judge yourself, alone, with every single one of your secrets, the rest of you can wear on your sleeve. And we know what a sleeve is for. They had noted that indeed I acted honorably throughout the conquest and fought hard against any notion of glassing their world. The humans were only vandalizing as their only meaningful way to fight back, and the muggings were all very careful to not kill anyone. It feels, uh, weird. No, but damn it, now I can only respect them for that. So, we shall we go. Back to us, of course. They owe us all a bit of cosmetic surgery, as they call it, and we have a lot to teach them about the galaxy beyond. But then after that, we are free! And fellow Freeblades, then we can do whatever we want. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1246. Story number one. Great Human, written by Ogosh. Humanity was surprised to discover, after only 200 Earth years into deep space colonization, and after only meeting a handful of other alien races, that our reputation had preceded us. In 2443, when the colony ship Kabat made contact with a new race on its journey to Arm 6, they had asked us if we had heard of the aliens calling themselves uh, Humanity. We didn't understand the reaction of reverence when the colonists said, We're it. It turns out that humanity had been famous on the Galactic Sage since the War of the Tishmari some 80 years prior. We had left such an impression with them that they went and warned the rest of the space about the two-legged psychos. Upon surrendering to humanity, the Tishmari High Commander Yasha Kalmais retreated into solitude for several days, seemingly in shame. Soon after, he came out of hiding and sent out a warning to all non-human communication hubs. He composed a poem steeped in fear, respect, and admiration. 
that told the galaxy of the nature of humanity. What was more surprising to us, however, was that Carmise later that day sent two-word message to Earth. You're welcome. It took us 84 years to realize why he'd sent that. Find you a Tashmari, greatest of warriors, their eyes keen, their fists clenched, their beaks sharp. No, they are great, but only in war. Find you an Avio, greatest of diplomats, their intentions clear, their manners welcoming, their pacts unbroken. No, they are great, but only in diplomacy. Find you a Harod, greatest of builders, their homes sturdy, their towers high, their tools pristine. No, they are great, but only in building. Find you a human, greatness itself. Their war is greatness, their diplomacy is greatness, their building is greatness. They turn barren sand and greatness blooms. They swim through stars and greatness rides in their wake. They sunder their foe until their foe learns of their greatness. Great of teaching, great of learning, great of stealing, great of creating, great of destroying, great of mind, great of body, great of soul. No, they are great in all. Initially, we thought Carmi's gift to us was cowing the galaxy before we ever got there. But there was greater wisdom in his actions. Thanks to Carmi's, the Tismari were the only species we ever had to embarrass by besting them at their own game. He didn't do it for us. End of story. Story number two. Stranded, written by Warp Mind. T minus six days, fourteen hours, thirty-three minutes. Krath swore briefly at the smoking console before pointing the vastly more effective fire extinguisher at it. He reinitiated to skip the last maintenance cycle, and now he was going to pay for his lapse in judgment. Navigation was out, controls were almost shot, and he was rapidly, uh, too rapidly, approaching the atmosphere of a dead world. The only things still working were, well, comms were still operational, and the emergency signal was blasting like a frightened livestock. This is the Terran Cargo Hauler Australia receiving your emergency signal. Please confirm and identify. Krath scrambled for the communications console. This is the Rathlagan Cargo Freighter, Lithe Songbird. I've lost navigation to most of my consoles due to maintenance failure. I need help rather urgently. Currently, an approach vector to Rathus 3. Can you provide assistance? Balls. That's a bit of out of way away. We're heading in the opposite, um... Please hold. Rath frowned. He had heard humans were usually ready to go through hell to save a lost ship. But if they were headed in the opposite direction, a course change would cost... Light songbird, are you still there? Krath exhaled. Still here, Australia, though time is passing. Do you have some good news for me? Yes, and, um, no. We're already coming about or to Rathus 3, but between course corrections and gravity wells, we're five to six standard days away from Rathus 3. Do you think you can maintain orbit until then? Krath looked at the view screen and the myriad of blackened, dead keys and consoles. Uh, not really. I'll be lucky to not break up an impact with the atmosphere. A small pause again. Understood, light songbird. We'll be there as soon as the drive can handle it, and hope to find you alive. 
We'll make sure to bring you home, one way or another. Grath nodded slowly. I'll try to land at least somewhat intact. Uh, she's built for re-entry, but the angle isn't good. Light songbird out, and uh, I hope to see you in five to six. Australia out, good luck. T-minus six days, 14 hours, 22 minutes. Krath cast a quick glance in a mirror and plucked out a few singed hairs from when the console exploded. When the comms console choked again, a local signal. That couldn't be Ned Songbird, this is Colonel Ferguson. Heard you're in trouble. Do you have uh, any control at all? Minimal, but yes, uh, I can probably make minor course corrections, but nothing near what I need to avoid going down. That is fine, I can see your approach. I have a beacon for you here, transmitting course changes now. It's the best shot. Well, your only shot. You have less than three standard minutes, counting from now. Kath blinked at the crude instructions. A 17-degree course correction wouldn't do anything normally, but uh, this colonel seemed convinced. The nav thrusters protested, but he saw the planet shift ever so slightly on the viewscreen and uh, something tingled in his inner ear, like a ship was pulled by another gravity well, one that worked against the planet. Light songbird, I see you made it. Uh, the moon's unusually dense, and you managed to pass the Langrand point. It won't save your orbit, but it will help slingshot you to a better re-entry angle. Try and land as close to the beacon as you can. There is a decently sized landing site that you can use. I'll try and keep everything ready for you. Krath exhaled slowly as he felt the ship tremble as he started to approach the edge of the atmosphere. He could feel the gravity shift again and carefully ease the ship down the layers of gas, one more toxic than the other. Thank the stars the ship lived up to its namesake when it was gliding on the wind. Well, made an honest attempt, at least. D minus six days, nine hours and fifty-four minutes. Grath groaned, reluctantly regaining consciousness after a bumpy landing. He glared over at the comms console, which was chirping incessantly. If anyone's alive in there, please respond. It's been ten minutes since you hit the ground, and no signal. If anyone's alive... He growled, snagging the microphone in four of his six hands. I'm alive. Just, just stop shouting. My head hurts. There was a hint of relief on the voice on the other end. Oh, good. If you don't mind, I'll come over and take a look at the shipper. You said control console and navigation are both out. Prath let go of the mic with two of his hands. Yeah, I don't think any else is broken, uh, at least on the inside. But I don't know if there's any exterior damage. He could almost hear the colonel smirk. She'll be all right, mate. Nothing I can see from this end. Just stay clear of the airlock, just in case. Lots of nasty gases in the atmosphere here. Some twenty minutes later, Krath heard the airlock cycle, followed by heavy footsteps. A single, heavy-set individual approaching the bridge. All right, Captain. Where's the patient? I take it that you're not able to troubleshoot the old girl yourself. Krath frowned at the sight. The colonel was a little shorter than himself, but twice as wide, and still wearing a full EVA suit with tinted glass. It was slightly unsettling, even as he set down a toolbox and started to unbolt the ruined console. Ah, I see what happened. This capacitor overloaded. Wouldn't have taken three minutes to fix during a routine maintenance. Krath shook his head. So, um, you can repair my ship easily. The colonel shook his head, or so it would appear. 
Not a chance, mate. It blew and took two consoles out in the process. You're going to need a lot more replacement than just a capacitor. Good news is, I can fix her. Bad news is, it'll take a few days to assemble the consoles, and your nav charts are probably gone. No, um, if we can get you into orbit, the Australia can probably help sort that out. Will you be able to install parts on your own while I build the rest? Krath was still looking at the treacherous capacitor. Depends on how complicated the installation is, yeah. If I just have to plug in connectors and fasten circuit boards in place, then yes. If I have to solder the circuit, then no. The colonel gave a thumbs up gesture. Good! I have the parts I need to build a replacement. Just sit tight while I get started. T minus three days, four hours, and forty minutes. Wrath let out a few choice expletives as the spark singed his fingertips before heading back to the radio. Colonel, I do hope no ill will will come from the twin capacitors deciding to electrocute me while I'm connecting them. No, not outside of a bit of less hair growth on the electrocuted spot. You know, if not for the planet's inhospitable condition, company's nice. Rethus 3 used to be a beautiful place. Grath hesitated. It's listed as a dead world. Uh, what happened? The colonel seemed to be lost in thought for a few seconds. Uh, there was a war. The colony was evacuated when it was clear that the planet wouldn't be able to sustain life anymore. A planet killer weapon. Don't know how it worked. I think it froze the molten core or something, and then went downhill from there. Planet's magnetic field disappeared. Plants and animals began to die off. In short, nothing could have lived here without really cumbersome protection and imported food supplies. Grath nodded thoughtfully. I heard the Thurgian hegemony used weapons like that. The Terran Coalition glassed their last world ages ago, though. There was another pause. Yeah, that sounds about right, uh... Wasn't anyone, anything, alive on this planet for decades afterwards. I looked towards the console again. If you like, I could give you a lift wherever you'd like, once the songbird lives again. A right laugh. <laughs> yeah, no thanks, mate, but no thanks. I have a job here for a little while longer. Can't leave it unfinished. But there is one thing. I've got something I'd like to hand over to my son, Mikey. I know he's working on the Australia, and if you could pass it along when you meet up with him... Uh, that'd be kind of you. Kath grinned. Certainly, I can bring a small gift to Mikey Ferguson, was it? How will I know it's him? Easy enough, just ask to see him. All right, I've got focus on this bit here. It's a tricky bit of circuitry here. D minus two minutes. Colonel Ferguson had retreated to the Contile Tower and maneuvered the cranes to help the lithe songbird launch gracefully and vertically. Grath ran all six hands affectionately over the keys before thumbing the radio. Everything ready for launch here, and I've got Mikey's package safely in the cabinet. All clear on your end. All clear. Uh, give my best to the kid, and try not to skip maintenance next time. Indeed, uh, well, how long until I should launch? Any time, but in two hours the window of opportunity will close due to the moon. For what it's worth, Grath, I'll miss having you around. Grath smiled. Likewise, Colonel. But perhaps I can come by in a year or two. Maybe give you a lift back to home. Nah, you'll probably not find me here then. But I do appreciate the offer. No get before I change my mind. The beacon shone brightly as I fired up the launch sequence, pointing my way back into orbit, where I'd be able to wait for the Australia. Twenty hours later, orbit. Grath was chaperoned through the umbilical corridor to the Australia 
and brought to meet a venerable human sporting some quite impressive white facial fur, like two massive horns stretching out to the sides from just under his nose. He extended a hand in greeting, and the crowd shook it enthusiastically. Glad you can make it. Uh, my navigational charts are sadly uh, all gone, uh, and I'll need them replaced. Um, if you'd be willing to share... The old human nodded. Of course, sir. Though I am surprised you managed to stay in orbit for over six days after your last message. Krath shook his head. I didn't, but for a long story, is there a Mikey Ferguson here? The old man frowned. That, that's uh, me, Captain Michael Ferguson. Why? Krath arched an eyebrow and handed over a little package. Really? The colonel made me expect someone much younger. He sent this gift. Captain Ferguson quickly opened the little box and took out a pair of old stained dog tags, visibly stamped with Ferguson James Colonel. He gave Krath a long look. I'll uh, ask my navigator to install the charts for you, but uh, you'd best come with me and tell me that story. T-minus 62 years, 4 months, 11 days, 13 hours and 44 minutes. James Ferguson watched the last ship with his own family on board streak towards the sky. Towards safety. The damnable Therdian had killed the planet, and it wouldn't be long now until nothing could survive there anymore. He reached for the microphone. Looking good, Brigadine. Take care of your passengers. You carry the most precious things in the world there. Copy that, Colonel. Any messages you want me to pass along? He sighed. Tell uh, my uh, Tilda and uh, Mikey that I'm sorry, and that they should live well. Someone had to stay and make sure everyone else got off the planet. Everyone else. Had to be me. Someone else might have been less vigilant. Colonel James Ferguson sat in a chair facing the observation window and followed the starship's trajectory until it couldn't be seen anymore. It would be over 60 years before he stood up again to get one more person off the planet. End of Tales from Outer Space 1247 Story number one Don't Target Human Kids Written by TCGM Never attack young humans specifically. It is not recommended to harm them in the process of war. But so long as they are not the original target, then humanity will usually mourn them as casualties of that war. But if you intend to use human attachments to the young against them, do not. Do not even think of doing so. That's what the Helics did. The Helics are now an endangered species, only kept alive by humanity adopting their young. Humans have prisons where they send the worst of their criminals, murderers, assaulters, high crime, drug lords, and so on, these villains agree on very little. But even in these depths of depravity and despair, there is one kind of being they will all independently decide to severely injure or murder in return. Those who kill their young. Anyone's young. Humans will not spare those of their own species who target the young. Why would they spare you? End of story. Story number two. Castaways, written by Warp Mind. Kosk groaned softly as he opened one of his three eyes, trying to get his bearings. 
The last thing he remembered was an alarm. Then, then, something hit his head and uh, blackness. And now he was resting on what felt like sand. He opened another eye slowly, trying to look around. Hey, now, buddy, try not to move. You got banged up pretty badly there. I dragged you into the life pod, and we landed safely on the planets below. The emergency beacon is working, and we should expect help in, uh, oh, twenty standard days or so. Quask opened the third eye, staring up at the human from the adjacent cabin. The most unsettling fellow passenger. Human. Human Roger, was it not? Roger nodded. Yeah, Roger. And you are Quask, right? The ship was hit by... Uh, something. I don't know what, and went down. I don't know if anyone else survived, but I think we're the only ones to land on this island. You, unfortunately, have a number of broken bones, and probably a concussion. I've set them as best I could, but um, you're gonna have to stay in bed for a while. Quath looked up at the sky, then turned his head sideways just long enough to feel 10,000 angry stinging insects attack his neck and head. Sixteen star clusters, it hurts. Where did you find the bed? The escape pods don't have those. Roger grinned wryly. Old boy scout, buddy. Uh, the life pod has some rations and basic tools, and I can make do pretty quick, so just uh, rest there for a bit, and I'll get to work. Quask didn't really have much in the way of alternatives, so he closed his eyes and tried to rest through the pain, hearing the rhythmic thumping and creaking of what could only be an axe against wood. Apparently, the island had vegetation, at least. Quoth howled in pain as his leg was dragged sideways for a moment, and then he heard Roger's voice through the haze. Crap, uh, sorry, Quasca. Your leg slipped. I was just getting you into the stretcher here, to, to get you off the beach and into the shelter. He whimpered a little before calming down. I, I'll live, human, Roger. Or, or at least, um, I hope so. Wait, shelter. You built a shelter in just, uh, 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 how long was I out? Roger shrugged. I'd say I've been working for, uh, uh, four or five hours, in between checking on you to make sure that you'll be safe. Luckily, it's relatively low G planet, so I'm actually able to drag you over there without too much trouble. He fished out a ration bar from his pocket. Here, eat this. There's enough for two per day for a bit longer than we should be expect to wait. And I'll see if there's anything that I can forage tomorrow. Quask slowly chewed on his ration bar. It was completely devoid of flavor and packed with all the nutrients a Sofont could need. And two bars per day should just be a hair over the right amount for an adult Quathok. Well, it was a little undignified, perhaps, but he could probably endure being cared for for twenty days like this, so long as the human didn't insist on those strange noises he produced in this cabin over the course of this journey. Human Roger, that strange box of yours with the strings and the stick attached, uh, you didn't manage to get that into the life pod, did you? Roger looked a bit crestfallen. Oh, uh, I, I didn't realize that you were a banjo enthusiast, too. Uh, no, no, I didn't have time to go with any belongings. Mine or yours. Might have had the time if you were mobile, but um, when I saw you take the door to the face like that, uh, I didn't have much of a choice. Quoth looked at Roger as though the human had suddenly turned blue and grown gills and a third eye, which would have made him at least appear to be a civilized species. You didn't 
have a choice between saving my life and saving your own possessions. Was your cabin on fire? Was it venting? No, our cabins were not against the hull. Roger blinked, what? No, it's common sense, life before material possessions. He shrugged and hoisted Quarthark's stretcher onto a surprisingly sturdy-looking wooden frame, clearly fit to hold the stretcher suspended from the ground. All right, uh, that should serve you well for now. I can get on building a better bed after I look for more food. Quarthark slowly swallowed the rest of his ration bar and then closed his eyes. I uh, think I need to sleep again. Quarthark slowly chewed the morning ration bar. After twelve days... He was almost ready to lick Human Roger's arm for a speck of flavor. Though he didn't quite feel like testing the human's intimate zones, even for so strong a need. Though Human Roger seemed to be behaving a little strangely, more so than on the ship. He'd fallen into a pattern of three standard days of almost frenzied energy, slowly tapering off and turning into a helpless lethargy on the fourth day. When he'd spend all day sleeping, except if Quoth needed something. It was unsettling. But he couldn't deny that Human Roger had spent those waking days and nights in quite a productive manner. The shelter was quite cozy, and the new and improved bed was remarkably pleasant. Though Quask was becoming a little suspicious of those strange stains in Human Roger's clothes. If he didn't know better, he would have thought that it looked like some kind of fruit juice. Despite Human Roger swearing he hadn't found anything edible on the island. Well, except for fresh water, of course, thank the stars. He supposed it could just be tree sap or something similar from all the woodcutting. But still, it was a little annoying at how Human Roger always seemed to have half-eaten ration bars sticking out of his shirt pocket. Quask was stuck on two per day, while Human Roger was gorging himself as he pleased. Quask was afraid. He asked Human Roger about the strange stains on the shirt, and Human Roger became angry shouting about how he wasn't getting any gratitude and how he'd sacrificed so much to save Quask, and how Quask didn't understand human compassion being a stupid alien. He'd heard rumors that humans could behave strangely and irrationally, but this was uh, out of place, even for weird habits displayed so far. Quask had curled himself in the bed as best he could with his leg braces, shrinking away from human Roger's anger. And then Human Roger had stopped and just, uh, looked at him, as though he caught himself striking his own mother. Human Roger also hadn't reached the lethargic stage of his cycle this time, staying awake for three more days, and becoming increasingly irritable and strange in the process. The twentieth standard day came, and Human Roger had stated. The rescue shuttle showed up with a loud screech. Human Roger stumbled out of the little hut, eyes bloodshot, and said something to the rescuers that Quoth couldn't hear. But then three other people entered, and two of them started carrying his bed out to the shuttle, clearly instructed as to how best lift the whole frame without jostling Quask. As he was carried out, he spotted a pile of what could only be large fruits, and a pile of what appeared to be seeds and skins from the fruits. He just stared at the piles, speechless, not even registering that the other people in the shuttle and his righteous indignation began to see and his gills took on a purplish hue. Quask seized as he lay in the hospital. Here the human had belittled him in secret, all under the pretense of caring for him. Surely it was all out of spite for losing that dreadful banjo of his. The Hawesi doctor approached him, giving him a cautious smile. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. 
The good news is that your legs are almost guaranteed to heal without further intervention. The brakes were clean and the humans set the bones perfectly. It's going to take a while longer for the bones to grow back together properly, of course. But it does not appear that we shall have to make any further corrections. You're a human companion, though. Quoth grumped and leaned back. What? He ran off and said I'd pay for whatever he purchased on the way out. That lying, selfish... The doctor's shoulders fell. All four of them in a gesture of bafflement. The human saved your life. And you are ungrateful? Quask sneered. For twenty days he told me he didn't find anything edible on the island. And yet he gorged himself on fresh fruit every day while I was stuck in those awful ration bars. The doctor shook his head. Oh, oh no, no. Nothing of the sort. Yeah, let me show you. He pulled aside the curtains between Garth's bed and the neighboring one, where human Roger was stretched out, looking more gaunt than Quarth had realized he'd become on the island, with a mask over his face and several tubes sticking into his arms. Tell me, how many ration bars did you eat while there? Quarth blinked with all three eyes at once. I've had uh, two per day, except for the first and the last, so, uh, thirty-eight. Why? The doctor shook his head. The fruits were rich in alkaloids, the highly toxic ones. The life pot had a small scanner to identify edible and inedible plants. According to the scans, the fruits contained high doses of... He consulted his tablet. Caffeine, amphetamine, opium, cocaine, and nicotine. Components which humans apparently have some ridiculous resistance. You know, death worlders. But where the fruit would have killed you in minutes, it instead... Let me see, uh... Worked as several kinds of nerve stimulants, along with anxiety dampeners, pain reduction, and appetite suppressors. According to the rescue team, the ration box from the life pot still had 52 bars left out of the original 100. Meaning the human starved himself deliberately to increase your chances, should the recovery team be late. It seems that he lost between 10 and 15% of his body mass, far more than what is healthy. Quoth sat up and stared at human Roger's sleeping form, completely at a loss. Why? If he was sure we'd get help in twenty days, why would he do that to himself? The doctor shook his head. That's not quite right. The message in the life pod says a minimum of twenty standard days. It could even be forty standard days between when the accident occurs and until the rescue ship arrives and locates the active pods. It seems he was fully prepared to try and stretch his health to the brink for your sake. Quoth scratched his head. But, but, but why? The doctor looked at the tablet again. According to the rescue team, he said that you were the first alien he'd met who loves. He squinted to the text. What's a, a banjo? End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.